welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Play hard. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. What's going on, man? What's happening? What's up? Long time no see. It's been, what, about 72 hours before I got on this microphone and started spitting out some knowledge, started spitting out some things that I want to get down on and discuss in the world of sports and beyond. I'm back. I'm here. I'm ready to go. Wendell's World of Sports. Wendell Wallace, your host. Today on the podcast, I'm going to talk about some things concerning the updates on when some sports leagues will resume is starting their season. I'm going to be speaking about Major League Baseball. I'm going to be speaking about the NBA. I'm also going to be discussing a little bit about what's happening on The Last Dance, the Chicago Bulls documentary, speaking about leadership. Jordan, was he a nice guy? Was he a bully? Was he a tyrant? Does it really matter? Should he care? What's the big deal? All of those good things. And also him going to play baseball. I heard this stuff from baseball experts talking about the fact that he hit 202 in Double A in Birmingham, Alabama. That was unbelievable. That was fantastic. And if the strike didn't happen, there was a strong possibility that eventually Jordan could have made it up to the Chicago White Sox squad, the Major League Baseball squad. I'm going to tell you why that never would have happened. And even if that did, just for instance, because Chicago at the time, the White Sox at the time, not the biggest draw in town, trying to go up against the Chicago Cubs in terms of relevance and popularity during that time, while Jordan probably would have been brought up there more for that than anything else. Why that would not have worked. Read the name Frank Thomas would not have let that happen. And quite frankly, I don't blame, blame the big hurt for doing that. So I'll discuss that situation about that. Also want to get into something that um, Jason Whitlock was discussing concerning LeBron James. You know, Jason Whitlock from the school of Candace Owens and these other uh, house Negroes who want to sit there and, you know, stack and fetch and do all those type of things. I'll discuss some of the things that Whitlock was talking about when he was talking about Ahmed Arbery and some of the quotes or the tweets that LeBron James made, how Whitlock was talking about it was disparaging and he shouldn't have gone down that route. And this is the reason why I'm going to tell you why once again, Whitlock is full of shit when it comes to this situation. And then I'm going to end again with what's going on with the Georgetown University basketball program. And yes, the initial thought was, oh my goodness, this is ridiculous. This is horrible. This is terrible. Patrick Ewing can't coach. He's lost complete control of the program. This program is a dumpster fire. He needs to go. He's in over his head. All of these things concerning Matt McClung, the last recruit from the heralded class of 20, what is it, 2018 or 2019 or whatever it is, the last soon-to-be junior in the class of Akinjo and LeBlanc and Grayson Carter and some others who are going to be moving on. I'm going to tell you why, while it's not a good look, and while initially I was not happy, never was going to be calling for his head or anything like that, and you know, you have these polls. It's Georgetown on the right track. We're no better than we were three years ago when Patrick Ewing was named head coach of the of the Hoyas basketball team. This is ridiculous. This is horrible. This is terrible. I'm going to tell you why. Once again, slow down. Put on the brakes. Emotions. Calm down. Logic. Reason. Thinking. 
First of all, Patrick Ewing ain't going nowhere. If, if Shaka Smart is not going to get fired from Texas, then Patrick Ewing isn't going anywhere. In fact, the only real name coach from a basketball team in a power conference to even be fired of any name recognability rec recognition is Danny Manning. And he had six years at Wake Forest. He didn't go anywhere. So Patrick Ewing is not going anywhere. He deserves a couple of more years to see what he can do. And I'll explain once again why, why it's a bad look without question. And mistakes were made without question concerning Patrick Ewing and the whole Matt McClung situation. Again, in the end, I really don't know what Patrick Ewing could have done in terms of just like the Ken Joe, just like LeBlanc, just like Galen Alexander, just like Myron Gardner, and now LeBlanc, and now McClung. I don't know exactly what he could have done. For all these people now who are speaking about doom and gloom and Georgetown is going to stink and they're going to finish behind DePaul and St. John's and they're horrible and they're terrible and they're irrelevant, didn't we hear all that same bullshit when the uh, James Akinjo and Josh LeBlanc left the program that Georgetown was going to go into the toilet then they went ahead and they beat Syracuse, they won six straight games, and then when McClung went out and then your seven went out that they weren't going to be competitive and they were going to be no good and they were going to be horrible and this is a joke and Patrick Ewing... The coach that he is rallied for them and beat Butler, a ranked team on the road with basically six players. And he went ahead and played such teams as Villanova and Providence very close and very well. So, look, man, I'm not saying that Patrick Ewing is on the level of a Bill Self or a Mike Krzyzewski or a Roy Williams. It's a long time those guys took to become the coaches that they were. But please, again, can we stop with the, some of the bullshit that Patrick Ewing is enduring as far as criticism is concerned. You can talk about his recruiting all you want to. You can't talk about his coaching. Then you can always bake it together talking about, well, coaching and recruiting and, and dealing with players and all of those things, all of this, those all mesh into what makes a great coach. Okay, you know what? I would rather have a guy who needs to work on some of the weaknesses that Ewing has as a coach, which I really don't know. Maybe it's uh, – when you talk to recruiting folks that, uh, you know, maybe you should look a little bit more into their character or maybe look more into the agenda that they have going into the uh, program. But as far as, as X's and O's and getting his team to play well and getting his team to play hard and giving him everything that they've got, last season's team, you cannot tell me that, A, those guys weren't well prepared, B, those guys didn't play their ass off for their coach, and C, they overachieved on what the expectations were for many of the naysayers who, by the way, I forgot to mention all these folks who are talking about Ewing sucks and he needs to go and he can't coach. What, bring in your coaching resume if you're so great. What have you done at the college basketball level as a coach to give you the acumen, to give you the responsibility, to give you the authority to say that Patrick Ewing has to go? Please give the man a couple of more years. Now, I will say this. If this year's, uh, this year's class that he's bringing in, if they go the same route as Akinjo and LeBlanc and Grayson Carter and Matt McClung and those guys, if they go down the same path, then, yeah, we've got some serious problems. I mean, some real serious, maybe this ain't the job for you type of problems. But I'm willing to wait two more years until we cross that path. Again, if the Hoyas aren't any closer to making the tournament in two years, if we're not showing any type of progress toward that, then, yeah, we've got some serious problems. Right now, the ninth is stuck in the back all the way through. Progress is not pulling it out six inches. Progress is not pulling all the, pulling the knife all the way off the back. Progress is when you take the knife out the back, you hold up the wound and say, sorry for sticking the knife in your back. So right now, the knife is in the back of the Georgetown program. 
I think right now Patrick Ewing is slowly pulling that knife Alice out of the back, but there's still work to do. It's progress to the fact that, yeah, it's not deep in the back like it once was, but it still needs to be patched up and it still needs to be, the wound needs to be healed. So I don't know if you got that analogy. I don't know, man. I just got Malcolm X on my mind. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Those are the things that we are going to be talking about today in the world of sports, but we begin the podcast, after my little Georgetown rant, we begin the podcast, once again, an update on when sports leagues will resume or start their season, let's start with Major League Baseball, owners approve Major League Baseball season proposal plan to start the season around the 4th of July without fans at the ballpark, according to a person familiar with the decision told the Associated Press that spring training could start as early as mid-June. Now, the outline for the season, each team will play 82 regular season games against opponents in its own division, so interleague matchups would be limited to the AL East versus the NL East, the AL Central versus the NL Central, the AL West, American League West versus the, the National League West. Nobody would play in their home stadiums if teams would be unable to play in their home ball. I'm sorry, teams would play in their home stadiums and teams that were unable to play in their home ballparks. They could choose or share a major league facility with another team or play in their own spring training complex. <laughs> I guess those are situations to be determined later. But the postseason play would be expanded from 10 teams to 14 by doubling the wild cards in each league to four. And the active rosters are expected to be in, uh, expanded from 26 players to 30 players. A 20-man taxi squad consisting mostly of an organizations top minor league players would be available all season of course just in case someone came down with the coronavirus you can go ahead and not put a halt to the entire season you can go ahead and just slide somebody in his place and move on with the schedule and with the uh, leagues and the game from there the all-star game which was scheduled for july 14th at Dodger stadium well that's going to be called off of course and i have no idea what's going to be happening with the triple uh, a and the double a and the single a squads of these uh, franchises, so we'll move on from there. So right now, I guess the only thing after listening to all that and after basically giving the outline and the foundation for that, the owners are waiting on the approval of the uh, players' union. So talks are expected to be difficult, of course, because, as you know, when it comes down to professional sports, it always comes down to money, just like it should be. I'm not saying that as a negative or a, or a slight or a diss, but that's just the way it is, man. It's about... Hey, we're getting paid for this. You know, we're independent contractors who are being signed to play baseball by your franchises, by your organizations, by your companies. That's what baseball teams are, basically, companies. So we're going to have to be talking about what's going to be in it for us in terms of the pay schedule, in terms of us getting paid. Because moving forward with this pandemic of what's going on, everything is thrown completely out of whack. Now, the main concern over a proposal, over this proposal in terms of the revenue, and as we know with baseball, the revenue is supposed to be, we're going to be splitting your 50-50 with the pie. The main concern over a proposal is that revenue split that would be absolutely unprecedented for baseball. In fact, um, on ESPN, Jeff Passan spoke about that. Players aren't exactly happy with this right now because if you look at the NFL, if you look at the NBA, if you look at the NHL, they all have revenue splits. The difference between those three in Major League Baseball is that MLB does not have a salary cap. And typically you see a revenue split in leagues that have salary caps. Now, we are in very different times than normal. And so MLB here is 
trying to get creative to figure out how to make up for the losses that they're going to have in revenue by not having fans in stadiums. But ultimately, the MLB Players Association is looking at a March agreement that was made with the league that said they're going to be paid a prorated share of their salary depending on the number of games played. Now, the league doesn't exactly see it that way. They think that the agreement says if there are no fans in the stands, it's different. That's going to be hashed out over the coming days and weeks. Yeah, so what he's saying is all other leagues have revenue splits, but they also have a salary cap, and the revenue splits uh, that have salary caps, like I mentioned before, Major League Baseball doesn't have those. Football does, the NFL does, NBA, basketball does, hockey does, but you know whether it's a soft cap or a hard cap, they all have salary caps, which is based upon the revenue. Uh, baseball doesn't have any of those things, so the player unions want nothing in baseball. The player unions want nothing to do with a salary cap, nothing, zero, zilch, zilch, nothing. Now, the owners are trying to recoup the money they're going to lose because, of course, no fans at the ballpark. And if you're taking a look at the revenue that comes in, 40% of the revenue that baseball gets is from the from the um, fans coming in with the tickets and everything, buying the tickets and moving in and watching those games, if there's going to be no games in terms of the fans to come in to watch, well, then that is going to be a huge, huge, huge loss for the owners, and the owners are like, well, you know, if we're going to be taking this loss, man, the players, you all are going to have to take the loss with us. So, once again, we propose this 50-50 split on the revenue. There's going to be less revenue, but those contracts that you signed before, and we knew about some of those big-time contracts, such as the Bryce Harper contract with the Phillies, such as a Mike Trout contract extension he signed with the Anaheim Angels and others. I mean, we're going to have to see what we can do to kind of finagle those numbers and kind of adjust those numbers because, again, those are going to be based on pre-pandemic revenue. And when you have a situation, again, where we're going to be losing a lot of the money, not because of anything that we did, just because that's the way the world is today with this virus going around, then you need to help us out. And the players are like, fuck you with that one. So, you know, the players are referring to a March agreement for why they won't uh, they won't agree to a revenue split. They said the prorated share of what they're supposed to be making is based on the number of games they'll play the season. So basically it's like, yeah, okay, we can go ahead and we can take that pay cut, no, no question about it, because we're not going to be playing 162 games. But basically, let's just throw out an arbitrary number. If I'm making $10 million a year for playing baseball and we're only going to be playing 82 games instead of 161, well, instead of making $10 million, you're going to have to pay me $5 million. That's what, the, that's what the players are talking about. And the owners are like, well, no, no, no. I know you're making $10 million, but, you know, that's all going to have to be chopped up a little bit more because normally more, normally that $10 million was based on us making $5 billion as a league. So we can go ahead and pay you that money. Now, since we're not going to be making $5 billion because of this pandemic, it had nothing to do with us being poor owners or being bad businessmen. It was just a situation where, this is a once-in-a-century, hopefully, type of situation where it's affecting our bottom line. Because of that, there's going to have to be some finagling in terms of how much you're getting paid. And once again, the players are like, bullshit, pay me that my $5 million because based off of those 82 games. So the owners are going to propose that players receive the percentage of their 2020 salaries based on a 50-50 split of revenues Major League Baseball receives during the regular season and the postseason, the proposal We'll consider fans being able to return to ballparks at some point. It would start, of course, with maybe a small percentage. And then at first, 
it would then gradually increase depending upon exactly what's going on. I mean, right now we're starting phase one in this world, in this country, in terms of opening up the economy, but we, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. And it also depends upon, you know, if the baseball is going to be starting, say, in July. Well, July, the situation is going to be completely different than when I'm recording this podcast, which is on the 15th of May. So who knows? Now, there's not going to be a vaccine. There's not going to be something that's going to magically have us go back to what it was before the virus started. But there could be something, say, maybe not in June or July or that July 4th start date. But maybe there could be something in September or October where the teams are still playing that where it could be we could start having fans go back to the ballpark. So we can then maybe see about adjusting salaries based on that. But I don't know, man. I don't know. According to information from Forbes, again, an estimated 30% of team revenue come from ticket sales. And baseball saw $10.7 billion in revenues last year. So if you're thinking about teams losing 30% of their revenue from ticket sales because there's no tickets to be had because the fans aren't allowed in the ballparks, the 30% of $10.7 billion, that equals, let me see, 10 to 10 over here, and see, 21, and then you move to 10, and 10, 3 times 0, 0 plus 2, and then the 1 is 4 to 10. So it equals up to $3.12 billion that baseball is going to be losing if everything was the same in terms of the amount of revenue that baseball generated. So, you know, it's 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 going to be interesting to see where the where the players and where the owners finally decide. I mean, you, you got to do something, man. I mean, we've been without any type of sports now for since March. For the first time, maybe in a long time, baseball has the opportunity to really be at the center stage of like, yeah, man, let's fucking get this thing back together. I mean, opening day is going to be something wild and crazy in terms of baseball, just because by that time, July 4th, and we're talking about a situation where there's going to be many there's going to be many people in this country that are still going to be stuck indoors that won't have the won't have the freedoms because of this virus. There won't be any NBA. There won't be any NHL. There won't be any Wimbledon. There won't be any you know thoughts and discussions about the upcoming summer Olympics because those are on ice. So there, I mean, except if you're a golf fan, if you're a NASCAR fan, if you're a UFC fan or an MMA fan, you might be able to whet the appetite a little bit. But still, baseball, if everything can get it together in July 4th, and we don't know when the NBA is coming back, we don't know when the NHL is coming back, we don't know what's going to be happening with football. I mean, this could be a situation where baseball could truly, seriously be the only star in town which would do great, which would do wonderful for the sport. So we'll see what happens. But Major League Baseball, without playing, everybody's losing money. So we're talking about 50-50 split. We're talking about salary recaps. We're talking about everything like that in terms of the players and the owners. Hey, man, everybody's fucking losing money. So when you speak about where does baseball get most of their money or where they get the, the large percentage of the money, it comes from both local and national situations, local revenue and national, situ- uh, national revenue. The local revenue includes television contracts, which can start around $20 million if you're taking a look at the Miami Marlins. It could go all the way up to $250 million if you're taking, taking teams into account like the Los Angeles Dodgers or the New York Yankees or that type of deal. Almost half of the local revenue, net revenue, is pooled in the share. Bill Beck, long, long time ago, when he was owning the, then the Kansas City A's, was talking about, wait a minute, man, I'm up there playing the Yankees at Yankee Stadium. Why are they getting all the money? I mean, we're responsible for those guys going through the ballpark. Yeah, 
you know, Joe DiMaggio is a draw. Yeah, Mickey Mantle is a draw. Yeah, Whitey Ford is a draw. Yeah, Elston Howard is a draw. Yeah, all those guys are draws, and the Yankees itself is a draw. We understand that. But, damn, they got to be playing somebody. I'm quite sure they're not going to be having all these people come in to watch, the, watch a, uh, an inter-squad scrimmage. So whether the Oakland A's or at the time the Kansas City A's or the Cleveland Indians or anybody else in the American League, no matter how big of a market that they came in, we should be able to get a percentage of the pot for coming in to play the Yankees because the Yankees are bringing us in or the Yankees Major League Baseball is having us to go to Yankee Stadium to play. We should be able to get some of that money because people are going to watch the Yankees play against us, the Kansas City uh, A's. So we should be able to get some of that money. So that's where all of this stuff started in terms of the local markets, in terms of their television contracts, in terms of their gate receipts, in terms of everything that they make locally goes into a pool. So the Los Angeles Dodgers can help out the Florida Marlins, even though the discrepancy in the TV contracts and the, the amount of local revenue they make, the disparity is it's, it's huge as far as this difference is concerned. So we have the local revenue in which where Major League Baseball gets most of his money. Then you're talking about the national revenue, where it comes from television contracts for the postseason and games of the week. You're talking about league-owned media entities, Major League Baseball Advanced Media, Major League Baseball, and then um, Major League Baseball Network. You have the licensing, the merchandising, the corporate sponsorship. Again, all of that is divvied up, and it goes to all of the teams. So that's where baseball is making most of their money. That's where the owners are making almost all of their money when it comes to their their franchises. So, again, they have to be looking out for what they're going to be going down with. So if if it comes to a PR battle, I think if we talk about a PR battle, where does baseball, if baseball doesn't return, Let's say, for instance, again, the union, the players' union in baseball, which is the strongest union, one of the strongest unions, I think, in the entire country. If they say, no, nah, man, again, we are, not, we are not accepting any revenue split. We are not going down that road. And then we have to sit out for the sake of Kurt Flood and others who fought and scratched and, and sacrificed for us to have the advantage of what we have today. Then we're going to go ahead and we're going to do those type of things. We're going to be going ahead and basing our principle on the fact that we will not acquiesce. We will not back down. We will not let down those like Brett Saberhagen and others who fought for the opportunities to give us the financial, you know, the financial flexibility and the financial uh, gains that we have and the advantages that we have. So we're going to say, that's okay. See you later. If that really does happen, and because every time there's a strike, you know, people are talking about, well, millionaires versus billionaires and the real losers are the fans. I think in this PR battle, if baseball doesn't return, the owners are going to be the winners, are going to be the ones who are going to be taking a look and saying, yeah, you know what, we're going to be siding with you guys. The hell with the players. Even though you have multiple teams right now that are planning layoffs or furloughs starting June 1st for some of their employees for uh, baseball, even though the owners are – you know, trying to save some money by laying off furloughing folks uh, starting next month. I think the general notion is that, you know what, millionaires are being greedy because they won't accept any form of salary cap in a difficult situation. The owners, I don't think, and this could be coming from the general public, I don't think the owners are trying to bamboozle or sneak upon them or try to be sneaky or tricky or anything like that. It's just, once again, this is a situation where this is a once-in-a-generation-at-best type of situation where everything is going to be changed, not just in baseball, 
we're speaking about there's going to be major changes needed just for this one period of time because of everything that's going down. And if the players are so greedy, if the players are so narrow-minded, if the players are so like singularly focused on just one thing and can't see the forest from the trees, well, then the hell with them. Are you kidding me? And I, and I think also you have to take into account that this stoppage, if the players play hardball and then the owners probably say, finally say, man, fuck you guys. You guys want to sit out and not take, uh, get a paycheck? Fine, I don't give a fuck. We're billionaires. You're millionaires. We can last a lot longer than you can. So if this is a situation where baseball misses the opportunity to come together, where the players don't give in a little bit and the players don't uh, uh, you know, help out the owners a little bit in this situation and baseball doesn't come back, and say, for instance, that the NBA returns and, ho- and hockey returns in the summer and football starts sometime in the fall and baseball is sitting on the sidelines, man, you know, I'm sorry, it's the players' fault. The onus is on the players in terms of the missed opportunity that they could have had during this pandemic where there's going to be a lot of people around this country, around the world, sitting at home doing nothing this summer and they had the opportunity, they could be opportunity, uh, have the opportunity for a lot of them to be reintroduced to the game of baseball. If you miss that opportunity because the players are sitting there talking about we don't want to help the owners out anyway in terms of finagling with our salaries, well then, you know, the hell with you guys. The hell with you guys. And like, again, like any other work stoppage, unlike 1972 or 1981 or 1985, 1990, 1994, all of these work stoppages in baseball. You know, you had one year, I think what, 94, they didn't even have a World Series at that time. Tony Gwynn was marching on trying to see what he could do to bat 400, and that was taken away from the equation because, again, the owners were like, no, we're not going, I mean, I'm sorry, the players were like, no, as far as salary caps are concerned, no, we're not going to be doing anything like that. We have a pretty nice situation, and we're not going to give that up. Fought too long, fought too hard. We're not going to be disrespecting those from the past who help us to the situation that we're in now. Go fuck yourselves. So the difference, I think, in this, if if there's truly a work stoppage in baseball, and baseball doesn't come back, and the players are playing hardball, unlike the others, the anger toward the players, if they're truly playing hardball, unlike 72 and unlike 94 and unlike 1985, 81, 1990, unlike any of those other ones, I think this will be a situation where it's kind of like, hey, look, man, we're all fucking struggling out here. The general theme from those from our society in this, in this country and this population is like, hey, man, we're all struggling. Look, in 1972 and 1981, 1985, 1990, 1994, I had a job. I wasn't worried where my next paycheck was coming from. I wasn't worried about my health. I wasn't being quarantined. My freedoms and my liberties were not compromised because you guys went on strike. So if you guys went on strike, guess what? I hadn't had an opportunity to go ahead. There were other things going around that I could turn my attention to. I I, I had those opportunities to do that. 
Now, I don't got nothing, man. Because of this virus, it's not a fault of mine, not a fault of yours, not a fault of anybody else's. But man, because of this virus, my, you know, I don't have a job. I don't have any income coming in. Or my income is being compromised right now. Or my situation at my job is being compromised right now because we don't know what's going to be happening. I can't see my elderly parents. I can't see my grandparents. I can't go ahead and do the things. I can't go ahead and see my friends. I can't go up and drive up and down Tropicana Avenue looking for horse at night. I can't go ahead and go and spend my money at a casino. I can't go and watch a movie. I can't do any of these things. So in a selfish way, baseball could give me just a little bit of normalcy. Just the break up the monotony of binge watching shows and doing other things. And you guys are going to sacrifice making millions of dollars in a situation like that where, guess what, man? You know what? At my job, I got laid off because of this coronavirus. Guess what? At my job, I lost a whole bunch of money. And now you guys are sitting up there talking about you're going to stick to your principles because you don't want to help the owners out during this time where it's affecting everybody. That's short-sighted, that's short-sightedness, that's narrow-mindedness, and that's selfish, and fuck you guys. Fuck all you baseball players in your union. I think that could be the situation in terms of why the anger and the venom and the disgust could turn toward the players this time. Again, in 94, who gives a fuck? You had baseball, I'm sorry, you had the NFL going on, you had college football going on, you had your everyday stuff going on, you had your family, you had your kids, you had the ability to see your, your grandparents, you had... You weren't walking around wearing a mask. I mean, all of you could get your hair cut. Your hair didn't look like trash. I mean, it was just fantastic. You were sitting at home 22, 23 hours a day like you're being locked down somewhere on solitary confinement. It was fabulous. You didn't have to worry about going ahead and, and, and worrying about how you're going to get toilet paper or Lysol or any of those things. So if those baseball players wanted to have a work stoppage, yeah, it was an annoyance. But you know what? I have other things to do. Now it's almost like as far as my freedoms and liberties are concerned i'm sacrificing i'm going through this and you motherfuckers aren't going to even give me the advantage aren't going to even give me the ability just to have some relief from what's going on in the day because you don't want to take some money off the tap to help um uh, the, the owners you really are going to be like that in the united states alone eighty thousand people have died from the coronavirus unemployment is at historically high numbers idiots in Michigan, in New York, in Maryland, in Nevada, and all across the country, these morons, these dimwits, are you know up there at their up there you know yelling at their state officials and up there at their state capitals, talking about their freedoms and liberties are being taken away because heaven's sakes, I can't go ahead and get myself a massage. I mean, the essentials of going and getting a haircut or watching a movie are being taken away from me because Dr. Fauci is a fraud and this is a liberal conspiracy to make sure that the idiot that we have in the White House right now doesn't get reelected and all this, I mean, you know, when you act stupid, you get stupid, uh, stupid reasons and stupid uh, answers, right? But that's what's going on these days. And you've got baseball players now who are playing a kid's game who won't accept any type of pay cut. And when I say pay cut, you're still going to be a millionaire? I mean, damn, man, how much money do you need? Now, again, this is baseball. So for me, it's a little bit different in terms of my love for the game. If this was going on, I mean, for me, an NBA stoppage because of that would affect me a little bit more or, or, or would kind of, you know, ignite my passion and enthusiasm or my ire because I care more about the NBA than I do Major League Baseball. I mean, I hardly during the, I hardly during the summer watch baseball to begin with. So, you know, if those guys were gone, I mean, for the most part, 
I watch a baseball game maybe once or twice a week when everything is copacetic, when everything is fantastic, when everything is great. I mean, I don't know when the last time it was. I mean, maybe during the year, maybe during the baseball season, I might watch three to four games from the first pitch to the last. Maybe, maybe, possibly. I might fall asleep for an inning or two, but for the most part, you're asking, if you're going to sit down and ask me to watch an entire baseball game, I might get through three or four innings. Then I'll take a break and come back and maybe watch the seventh and eighth and ninth. Maybe, possibly. If the Yankees are playing the Red Sox, if the Dodgers are playing anybody good, if the Houston Astros are playing anybody good, if I've got nothing else going on, if i got nothing else to do, if I need a little background noise, if I need a little something to, you know, to keep my ears interested, I might turn on the baseball game. But for the most part, if baseball goes away, for me, for me, no big deal. But I can imagine in the situation where we're in right now where we don't have the other options of doing things because of this virus that we're going to have to go ahead and maybe not maybe go have to go ahead and watch a baseball game. We, we're not going to have that because a couple of millionaires who are making $15 million a year won't take a pay cut. We're only going to be making eight for one season before it jumps right back up to their normal salary. Fuck you guys. I'm out here. Once again, I'm trying to figure out what's going on in, with unemployment, man. I'm trying to figure out what's going on with my stimulus check. I'm trying to figure out What's going to be happening in terms of when I'm going to be going back to work? I'm trying to figure out what's going to be happening if I have to go back to uh, the restaurant, if I'm a waitress or if I'm a bartender or if I'm a account executive and I'm working for home, working from home and doing some other things. If I'm a taxi cab driver, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't know exactly what the, what the future is going to hold for me financially. I don't know. I have no idea. And you have these millionaire baseball players talking about, well, you know, because we're not going to accept anything as far as the salary cap is concerned. We're just going to uh, sit out the entire season. Oh, and since we have millions upon millions of dollars, we'll be able to handle it. Fuck you guys. That could be the general sense of the anger toward baseball players. So in a PR move between the owners and the players, if I'm the owners right now, I'm like, wait them out. Wait them out. It's almost like with the players, man, it's almost like the NRA. You know what I mean? You know it's how we, we don't ever, no matter how many school shootings there are, no matter how many folks in the south on the south side of Chicago or in Inglewood, California, or on Liberty Heights, Miami, or you know, was in, in in Southeast Washington, DC, or these other places where, you know, gang violence are prevalent and black folks are killing black folks, or maybe going to other neighborhoods where you have white folks killing white folks, or Hispanics killing Hispanics, Asians killing Asians, or just the prevalence of violence using a gun which no one ever talks about unless, you know, uh, the school kids get shot up or some guy goes on a rampage and he kills 14, 15, 20, 25 people. He goes Charles Whitman on somebody or a situation like that. But for the most part, it's like with the NRA, the NRA always tries to use this, these, these, um, these, these warnings, you know, like, well, you know, we can't, well, you know, we've, we've got, our, you know, our gun ownership members, we, we, we're, we're doing pretty good right now. So we can't in any we any circumstance whatsoever, we can't go back. None at all. If you think going back is going back and you speak to these idiot gun owners, not responsible gun owners, these idiots who sit there and say, well, let me tell you something. If I have to go into my Southern accent of the United States, if I have to go down South, I'm sorry, but that's where the majority of you numbskulls resident, uh, you know, uh, reside or maybe up there in the Midwest, maybe up there in Ohio or Michigan 
or Western Pennsylvania, all the fucking numbskulls out there who are up there sitting there talking about, well, let me tell you something. If we go ahead and we put any more gun legislation, all what's going to be happening next is pretty soon they're going to be coming to take our guns. The government is going to be coming to take our guns. Yup, yup, yup. So because of that, everything is fine. If I want to have an AK-47, if I want to have a tank sitting in my driveway for me to go ahead and do something and shoot some, shoot some hogs and shoot some bears and shoot some other things that's happening around, well then, doggone it, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Because I don't trust them damn government. They're trying to take away my Second Amendment rights. Y'all can't do that. So hell, all of these new gun legislation that y'all want to bring up, that's nothing more than a ploy. It's nothing more than a decoy. Nothing more than to see what we can do they eventually try to take our guns. We ain't going to budge. We ain't going to budge. We ain't going to budge. Ain't nothing right, Thelma We ain't going to budge. So, I mean, you know, it's that's the same thing with the players in Major League Baseball. Don't you see? Don't you see? If you agree to this 50-50 split, that pretty soon you guys are going to be like football. Pretty soon you guys are going to be like, like hockey with a hard cap. And all of a sudden, it's going to be a situation where you're not going to be able to make the same amount of money. You can't let in. You can't budge under any circumstance. Common sense from the players have to kick in in this situation, don't they? Trust, a little bit of trust, has to be, I mean, the players have to have some type of trust with the owners, don't they? To say, look, okay, we get you, we understand. At least if it's not a 50-50 split, can we at least sit down and talk to see what we could do somehow, some way? And if it's a, if you want to call it a salary cap, fine, fuck it, call it, call it a salary cap, you know, tomato, Tomato, you know, I don't know, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, a car executive, a car dealership, a car salesman, whatever, man, I don't know. But, you know, I think that, and normally I'm, I'm pro player because I ain't an owner, but normally I'm pro player. But in this situation, I think they should be trying to help out the owners in this situation. Major League Baseball, the players need to sacrifice just a little bit. And if you want to say accept for one year in these unprecedented times if you need to accept having a salary cap for one year if it means getting back on the field if it means you being the first major league uh, team sport in north america to get back on the field i think for the players a quote-unquote salary cap wouldn't be that bad of an idea World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I'm just a love machine. Love machine, baby. When will the NBA resume this season? Speaking about what's going down in the world of sports, speaking about when the updates, giving you updates when the leagues will start again. Well, there's momentum as far as the NBA is concerned. There's momentum building towards resuming play after a call with Commissioner Adam Silver 
and the Board of Governors. Now, this is what Adrian Wojnarowski said on ESPN's morning show, Get Up, just a few days ago concerning this. Message that the owners were sharing with each other, with Adam Silver on the call, you know, which is that there's, uh, you know, there's a sense among that group, you know, that they can keep moving here toward a return to play uh, sometime in the next, you know, beginning in the next month. And, you know, a, a lot of what the league is going to monitor here in the in the coming weeks before they have to make a final decision. And, and they're all generally agreed upon the idea of let's wait until the last possible minute. We can't have all the information. You know, how does the test continue? Or excuse me, how does the virus uh, continue to show itself in this country as it starts to reopen? Um, wh- where is testing availability? Those are going to be questions for the league to answer. But I think there's confidence among the owners, uh, the commissioner, and many in the Players Association that in an isolated environment that the league can minimize risk for players and for their staff uh, who'd be a part of it. There's going to be risk uh, whether they start in the next month or whether the season were to start up again in December. And and I think that they've all come to that realization and, and, and are starting now to move toward a return to play this season. All right. All right. So from the beginning, they're starting to, uh, the beginning to play, they're starting, oh, huh, English window, English. The beginning of play is going to be starting next month. So it's going to, they're going to wait till the last possible second before deciding and you get more information on how the virus shows itself as the country re- reopens and testing becomes more available. So there's confidence among players and the commissioners and the owners that in an isolated uh, location or space that they could manage the risk of someone catching the virus. Eh, okay, all right. You know what? I I think it's really a good idea for the NBA and if hockey wants to follow the same lead, the NHL wants to follow the same lead. Lead. I think it's going to be. Um, I think it's a wise move if you're speaking about, especially with the NBA, if they're trying to, if they're in the opinion or the thought process of starting 2021 that season sometime in December, that means that the NBA has plenty of time. They don't need to rush back in by Memorial Day. They don't need to go ahead even in June or July to go ahead and try to fit in a season or try to fit in the regular season and then the playoffs for the NBA. I mean, the league can go ahead and take a look and see what happens in terms of how this virus is progressing, what are we doing as far as this country to see what we can do to kind of make it a little bit more attainable for us to go back and try to reserve some type of normalcy that we lost before. I mean, there's other instances we can see if Major League Baseball starts, like they mentioned on the 4th of July, the basketball can, you know, sit back and relax and watch a little bit and learn a little bit and take the good and take some of the bad of what the uh, baseball is going to be doing, how the public is going to react to that. I mean, there's so many things, the, the testing availability, there's so many things. And if you go ahead, if you're in basketball and you start, say, for instance, say in August or September, and you finish and you do start the, the season, the, new, the next season in December or even in January, you're speaking about an eight to nine month season, then that can also give you more time in terms of maybe later on next year that the fans then can start coming back into the arena en masse, maybe not sit there like with this 15, 20,000 or something like that, but at least you would have a better opportunity because of the time that you allowed it for folks to come up with solutions, people much more intelligent concerning this pandemic than you can come up with solutions to have fans come back into the arenas. So again, if you're basketball, there shouldn't be any type of urgency 
as of right now to rush back into playing, back into resuming the season until you have some more information and you have some more knowledge on what exactly are you going to be doing. And moving forward, and I mentioned this before when you were when I was speaking about the UFC 249, in terms of, as for now, what's going to be the normal in terms of just our everyday lives, whether, again, you're working in a classroom, whether you're working in a restaurant, whether you're working in a movie theater, whether you're working you know, at, you know anywhere as far as any type of building business is concerned. I mean, this is going to be the new normal in terms of treating this virus almost like it's an injury. If you're speaking about the NBA or if you're speaking about the NHL or if you're speaking about any of these other sports leagues, like what we saw with Jacare Sousa at UFC 249. Okay, he came in, he tested positive, or he mentioned before that he was with people who were positive, family members who were positive. They tested him a few times. They found out that he was positive. So what happened for the UFC 249 pay-per-view card that happened this past weekend? Well, Jacare Sousa versus Uriah Hall was taken off of the card because one of them tested for the coronavirus, but that didn't cancel the entire card. That could be the same thing moving forward with the NBA. With the NBA, say, starts in August, and then in September, say, a player for the Dallas Mavericks is throwing out a team there. I'm not saying it's really going to happen, but whether it's Cleveland, whether it's Detroit, whether it's Chicago, whether it's Sacramento, whatever, when they're playing in Florida, when they're playing in an isolated uh, situation like Orlando, Florida, or Las Vegas, Nevada, if a player comes down with the coronavirus, he can be removed from the team, be quarantined, have another player move in from their organization, from their franchise, move in to take that spot so we can fill out the entire roster and the team can continue to play. The whole league wouldn't have to be shut down like it was on what was it, March 11th or 12th or somewhere around there when the Utah Jazz, when Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert was uh, tested positive for the coronavirus so in this situation it could be something different you would treat the virus as far as the player is concerned if he came down with the virus you could treat that player the same way you would treat him if he had a sprained ankle or a bruised knee in terms of not shutting down the entire league so good deal with me one thing i found out about watching two, uh, ufc 249 with the fact that, yeah, you know, I thought it would be a little bit awkward. I would thought it would be a situation where, you know, if it's not going to be 100% perfect or at least 95, 90% perfect in terms of how I watch a baseball game, how I watch a basketball game, how I watch any type of sporting event, that I would rather have them go away and then come back when everything is closer to the way that I'm used to watching sports. Well, after watching UFC 249 and the fact that I thoroughly enjoyed it and I thoroughly enjoyed the action, it got me you know, wanting again to see Kawhi Leonard play and LeBron James play and James Harden play and Bradley Beal play and all of these superstars on the in the NBA. So it, it, it got me it got me yearning for it. It got me a hankering for it. So now with everything that's going down in terms of what Adam Silver and the owners and players are, are presenting to try to get the league started up again, you know, in the upcoming future, yeah, I'm down with that. I really am down with that. So there's another report from ESPN. The league is hoping to decide on the future of the season within the next two to four weeks today. As I'm recording this, it is May 15th, so we're looking at sometime around the beginning or the middle of June. 
So again, by the time the league resumes, there's going to be enough testing available for the general population and the optics wouldn't look as bad for the league because you could take a look and say, well, wait a minute, how in the world are you having the NBA player, these multi-multi-millionaires, how are you having these guys, you know, take up all of the tests when those tests could be going to a single mother who needs to get back and start working again or someone who might need it a little bit more than, say, a LeBron James who's making $30, $40 million a year. So the NBA was cognizant of having that look on them to where, you know, it was like, let's just kind of relax and let's just kind of wait things out. And let's just see what happens with the testing is concerned. And the change in the language kind of shows that, you know what, we're kind of moving away and or we're, we're kind of gaining more confidence to when we come back, that part we won't have to worry about. That PR hit won't be as thunderous, won't be as impactful because the change in the language that Silver was talking about as far as testing is concerned or having access to testing it went from general population to frontline workers. Now, yes, you definitely don't want to take any type of deal in terms of, you know, uh, the ability to do the job from uh, nurses and doctors and those in the medical field, of course. So, of course, those are frontline workers or essential workers. If you're speaking about those who are working at hospitals, working in doctor's offices, working at gas stations, working at food stores and all those types of uh, places that you don't want to be able to put them at risk because you want to get out and start playing a basketball game again. But, you know, it's it's a situation where slowly but surely, and maybe the NBA is starting to see the country getting just a little bit antsy. I, I know that there's reports where the majority of folks want to sit there and say, no, I'm, I'm not fully ready yet to embrace the reopening of our society. But there is a little bit more of a, you know, I'm getting a little bit antsy. I'm getting a little bit, you know, like I want to get back to work. I want to get back to some type of normalcy. I think we need to relax on some of these, uh, some of these, 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 these rules that we have right now. I think the NBA is taking a look at that and saying, okay, I think it's getting to the point where we can go ahead, we can kind of massage or kind of ease up on some of the restrictions for us to get back and start playing basketball again. As of May 14th, this is according to the CDC, the total viral test reported in the United States is somewhere around 10 million. And from those 10 million, about 1.5 billion have come back positive. So we don't know in terms of, I think, what's it supposed to be. Like, we're supposed to be to get things back to really normal or to really get a good grip. We should be testing like one or two or three million people a day. Well, we're far from that in this country. But, yeah, I think as of right now, the NBA is starting to see that possibly we're not going to be faced with the, the, the hit from the general public if we go ahead and we start talking about, you know what, every day we're going to be using the test kits. Every day, you know, we're going to be doing everything that we can to make sure that our players, to make sure that our coaches, to make sure that our personnel, to make sure if we're living in a resort, the uh, employees who work there are all going to be negative so we won't have any, so we can greatly minimize the risk of having a situation where, you know, one player becomes infected, but then you get two or three or four, and, and then exactly what's going to happen. So the NBA is doing everything that it can, putting in all of its money and all of its resources to make sure that when they do come back, that they will have the best chance of being a beacon, of being an example for others, especially if baseball is not going to be doing anything during that time to show that, you know what, it's going to be, it's going to be okay. Sooner or later, it's going to be okay. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So the NBA is thinking about sooner rather than later getting back on the court, eventually going ahead and finishing the 2019-2020 season. 
As we know, the NBA practice facilities are beginning to reopen for players to get back into shape. Now, there's going to be no five-on-five scrimmages, no three-on-three things or anything like that. Just if players want to get in and get their workout in, maybe with their trainer, that's just fine. There's not going to be situations like Des Bryant and Dak Prescott and, and, and Ezekiel Elliott and all these other guys up there at Cowboys facility training and doing all these things. It's not going to be a situation like uh, Hollywood Brown and Lamar Jackson and Antonio Brown where they were out there taking pe- pictures and taking selfies and those guys were all hugging on each other in a clearly heterosexual way. But, uh, you know, the situation where the NBA, they don't want that situation. They don't want LeBron James and Kawhi Leonard and Giannis and everybody else is living. I don't think Giannis is living in, I don't think Giannis lives in, um, Giannis doesn't live in LA, I don't think. But basically, you know, if all of these guys, once the season shut down, they went back to their homes, you know, we don't want to have a picture of those guys all hanging out with each other, hugging and smiling and taking selfies with each other, all close up, you know, in, in that situation. Wouldn't, it wouldn't look good. PR-wise, wouldn't look good at all. So there's assumption that the players, the coaches, the staffers are going to have to get used to the possibility of having positive tests, and that would, you know, and, and play would continue even though that happens. That's where it is, man. That's where we are in this world. Just like when you go back to work and one of your office members becomes sick, hey, you're still going to be coming to work the next day. He won't, she won't, but you will. Same thing in the classroom, man. When I get back in the classroom, I'm, I'm quite sure it's going to look a whole lot different than when I went in before. I don't know exactly what's going to be happening, but if there's a child in that classroom that comes down with the coronavirus, the school system will not be shut down. Thank God I will be able to go back to work the next day and do our thing. Same thing with the uh, NBA, same thing with these other sports leagues. Just because one guy gets a coronavirus, treated as a sprained ankle, treated as a sore shoulders, treated as bruised ribs, and we just move on. So, but the NBA... Looking to play, it's discussing it here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace, yours truly, speaking about that. So where are some of the teams going to play? Again, the most recent NBA plan includes resuming the season in bubble cities like Walt Disney World of Florida and the Las Vegas Strip in Nevada. The games in Orlando would be played at the theme park while the games in Vegas would be played at the Mandalay Bay and other casinos, which is interesting because... Here in Nevada, Governor Sisolak is speaking about eventually reopening the casinos with, of course, you know, hedging toward, you know, the, the social distancing and other things. And, the, and you might put a cap on the amount of people that can be, you know, in the casino. And I'm quite sure that the blackjack tables and the slot machines are going to be spaced appropriately. And I don't even know. I don't even know, really, if they're going to have the ability to have the crap tables and the blackjack tables and the Kino, Kino uh, whatever those games are, because of the uh, distancing models that need to be used. So, I mean, if you're at a blackjack table, you got to, not unless you're going to be playing with only two or three people, like one person on one side, one person on the other side, and then the dealer uh, on the other side. And I, I don't know exactly how that how that is going to work. But, uh, you know, so it, it'll be a situation where, well, if you're going to have the NBA, if you're going to have some of the teams, half of the teams, a certain number of teams, at the Mandalay Bay or some other casinos, whether that would be, well, then is the Mandalay Bay willing just to shut down in a situation like that? I don't know. I don't know. And when I say shut down, I'm talking about, you know, obviously, if you have, for instance, um, 14, 15 teams 
you know, staying at the Mandalay Bay, of course you're not going to be having any uh, tourists or anybody else coming in there. So I don't know how that works. Or, or will you? I don't know. I don't know. But no, you wouldn't have because you don't want to put those players in danger. I, myself, it's going to be interesting to see because the the governor of California or, you know, Southern California is still not ready to reopen. And my thought and my thinking and my feelings are is that if we go ahead here in Vegas and we open up the strip, even if it's to a minimal situation, even if to a minimal degree, you know that the folks who are talking about in L.A. who are going to be on lockdown for the next three months, so we're basically, the governor's basically talking about, look, for the summer, y'all ain't going anywhere. Y'all ain't going to the beach. Y'all, the, the things that you enjoy about Southern California, Los Angeles, ain't happening this summer. So where do you think them folks, if Vegas opens up in June, or if Vegas open up, opens up later on in the month of June or July, and you're talking about folks in L.A. who have been basically on you know, lockdown since some in February, some since March, some since April, where do you think those guys are going to be going to go ahead and let it all hang loose? They're going to be going straight to Las Vegas. And they're going to be on our golf courses. And they're going to be in our hotels. And they're going to be, you know, they're going to be in proximity of workers who live in Las Vegas, who live in our communities. So, I know, that, that's going to be some bullshit when it happens, man. I'm staying far away from the fucking strip. I, I wasn't going on to the strip to begin with unless I absolutely have to. But it, it all comes back again to, you know, the NBA, where exactly are they going to play? I mean, if we're going to open up the strip to everybody, are you really going to put those players in danger of folks who are going to be coming down from Los Angeles, coming down from Salt Lake, coming down from Denver, coming down from Phoenix, coming down from uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, all of these places, which is in driving distance of Las Vegas. You're talking about Bakerfield. You're talking about San Francisco. I mean, are we even going to, are we going to allow Vegas to return to some type of a tourist destination again? which would in turn put NBA players in risk or at least increase increase the risk? I don't know. So I don't know exactly how that's going to hold out. I don't even know if if, if, if we if the NBA decides to put all of those teams in Orlando, if is that big enough? I mean, to hold all 30 teams, players, personnel, and what would that mean in terms of the employees that are going to be working there? I don't know. I don't know. And if, if Orlando... If you're able to open up the theme park for the NBA players, why aren't you not opening it up for the uh, for the uh, residents, for everybody else? So I don't know, I don't know, I have no idea. Well, so but th- those are some of the things that are going to have to be talked about and discussed before again the NBA gets back to resuming league play again. But then again, you shouldn't be in in any hurry. The fact that eventually. They're going to have a situation where the NBA is going to resume the season. They're going to have the playoffs. They're going to have a champion. That's good enough for me. I'm willing to wait. I don't mind if I wait, you know, another six weeks, eight weeks or so for you guys to figure that out and everything gets going with that. But, you know, multiple from multiple sources, what happens is, is that Silver and his team, the commissioner Adam Silver and his team have a decision tree. And that's going to be guiding the NBA on what type of choices it's going to make. And the league can chop off portions of the remaining schedule depending upon what happened from both a player and a health standpoint. There was a situation or discussion about, you know, having play-in games to where every team would have an opportunity to get into the playoffs. So teams like the Cleveland Cavaliers or teams like the Golden State Warriors who before the season ended had no shot of making the NBA playoffs. If they come back, there could be a situation where they might have have an opportunity 
to make the playoffs. They're talking about playing games. All of this stuff is being run up the flagpole, and Adam Silver is just seeing which one of these ideas the players and the owners and the league are going to uh, salute to. So it'll be interesting. The players want to play. And the players want to play, as I'm talking about it here on Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, the podcast, Wendell's World of Sports. Players want to play. And this is from Yahoo Sports. I mean, some of the biggest NBA superstars formed a united front to resume the 2019-2020 season. This was during a private conference call on Monday. Chris Paul, who's the uh, president of the Players Association, he got everybody together. He got LeBron and... AD, Anthony Davis, and KD, Kevin Durant, and Giannis Adenokupo, and Kawhi, and Steph Curry, and Damian Lillard, Russell Westbrook, all of these guys were in attendance for this for this call, for this get-together, and the overwhelming thought was, we want to get back, we want to play, we don't want to subsidize, or we, want, we don't want to cancel this season. And I'm not, if I'm someone like LeBron James, I mean, why? Why would you want to cancel this season? If I'm LeBron, I'm doing everything humanly possible that I can to get back on the court. You're chasing greatness. You're chasing ring number four. You're 35 years old. This is a great opportunity. Your Lakers are in first place and rolling before the season was shut down. So if you're LeBron, why are you going to give up that opportunity? Of course, within reason. Of course, they don't want to put anybody in any type of uh, uh, positive risk of getting this virus, but if it can be managed and it can be maintained and it can be, the risk can be reduced substantially, well, then of course, if you're LeBron and if you're Kawhi and if you're Anthony Davis and you're Giannis and these guys, you want to get back on the, on the court. There's still some unfinished business with Adina Cooper winning a championship. There's still some uh, situations in which Anthony Davis wants to get back on there and start playing. Kawhi Leonard wants to see if he can defend his championship. So, yeah, all of these things play into the decision for the players to say, man, we want to go ahead and we want to come back and play. So just like Major League Baseball, when we're speaking about the avenues and the obstacles that need to be overcome, they shall overcome. Hopefully they'll overcome someday. That basically, that there's some obstacles with the revenue sharing that the players are going to have to discuss in terms of getting back onto the court. Now, according to a memo given to the players concerning the NBA, beginning May 15th, which is today, hey, 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 teams will begin withholding about 25% of each player's paycheck with the adjustments to the withholding percentage expected in June and September. So players were also informed by Silver, Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA. They were also informed about the rights of owners to terminate the entire collective bargaining agreement and extend the owner's rights to do that until September 10th. So again, you're speaking about revenue from the 2019-2020 season and how it impacts the salary cap of 2020-2021. Silver told the players basically last week that the collective bargaining agreement wasn't even designated to withstand this pandemic. Again, just like Major League Baseball, we speak about the fans and the revenue that the fans generate coming to the games and being a 30% for Major League Baseball, well, then the NBA is 40% of the games. So you're expecting, you're, again, you're looking at these owners and you're saying like, well, we didn't know any of this stuff was coming on. So moving forward with, with this, I mean, how is this going to affect the salary cap for next season? How is this going to affect free agents for next season? How, are, as far as the money is concerned, what are we going to do about this? 
The salary cap was projected, even with this whole bullshit with China, the Daryl Morey comments and how it hurt the revenue stream coming from China. The NBA, was the, the salary cap was supposed to be somewhere for the 2020-2021 season. It was supposed to be somewhere around $120 million. Now, because of everything as far as the games that are going to be lost, the revenue that's going to be lost, if they go ahead and they come back and play, they're going to be not going to be playing in their own arenas. They're not going to be having the uh, gate receipts, the, the, the revenue coming in from fans going to the game. So you're looking then at a projected salary cap for the 2021 season being somewhere around $90, $95 million instead of the original projection of $120 million. So you have someone like a Steph Curry who's going to be making $42 million next year. Well, how does that work for the Golden State Warriors if the salary cap is only be going only to be $90 million? And Steph is going to be taking almost one half of that. You still have Draymond. You still have Clay, You still have others. You still have Andrew Wiggins who are on big-time contracts. So what does that say for Jacob Lakeup, the owner of the Golden State Warriors? Could you imagine the penalties and everything that he's going to be paying because he was setting up his salary, he was setting up his team's salary for somewhere being around $120 million, but now instead it's going to be 90 And that's not just with the Golden State Warriors. There's plenty of teams like that. What does it mean for, say, for someone like an Anthony Davis in terms of him being a free agent? What does it mean for someone like a DeMar DeRozan or a LaMarcus Aldridge or a Gordon Hayward in terms of them opting out of their contracts next year so they can go ahead and get a maybe not the same type of money or even or even more money that they were going to be getting, but instead of having two years left on their contract at $35 million, they could sign a six-year deal which could give them $30 million. So while the average salary per year wouldn't be as much, the contract that you would sign by opting out of your original contract would be longer, so in essence, you would be making more money. You would be making it over a longer period of time. Now all of that stuff is in jeopardy. Now all of that stuff is out the window. Because now if you're Gordon Hayward, who's making somewhere in, somewhere around $28, $30, 32000000 million, somewhere around that area, are you going to opt out of that contract when you know that the salary cap next year is going to be $90-something million? If you're Anthony Davis, do you opt out of your contract knowing that, you know what, the super max or the max that I'm going to be getting is going to be nowhere near what I should be getting because of the reduced salary cap? So these are some of the things that the owners and the players are going to have to deal with. Again, like Adam Silver said, hey, man, we had no idea this was coming down the pike. So like in Major League Baseball, the NBA, the players are going to have to do something to work with the owners to see what they can do. I don't, I don't know if it's going to be massaging the cap. I don't know what exactly is going to be happening. Eventually, the NBA and the salary cap is going to make it back to where it is. No question about it. But in the meantime... What are you going to do? In the meantime, again, if I'm an owner and I projected my salary to be somewhere around $110, $115 million because going into the season, you know, going into 2020 and up until March, it was a situation where I thought that we were going to have the cap be at this number. That's what it was projected to be. How did they know that there was going to be some damn coronavirus that was going to uh, wreak havoc on our economy and in our on, on our situation like that, including uh, according to the fucking idiot that we have in the White House right now. I mean, it was only first it was a hoax. Then it was only supposed to be a couple of people. Then no, no, no. First it was a hoax. Then it was something to where it's just the Democrats or the libs trying to do something to fuck up, fuck me up with the uh, investigation or the impeachment. 
Then it was a no big deal. It's only a situation where there's only going to be a couple of people and that will be gone. Then it was only 15 people, nothing to worry about. It was no big deal, no big deal. Then in the summer, everything is magically going to go away because of warmer weather and that will take care of the virus. Or don't worry about it. You can still go back to work and still do your everyday because it's no big deal. Everything will be taken care of. All of this bullshit that this idiot in the White House right now was talking about in March, talking about in February, talking about in January. This incompetent piece of shit that we have running the country right now. This incompetent, low-life, no-moral, racist, misogynist a-hole was talking about everything is fine. Don't worry about it. Nothing to see here. We're going to dismantle everything Obama sent and everything in terms of trying to deal with this virus. We're going to ignore. We're going to throw away. We're not going to deal with. Well, because of that fucking clown for amongst many, we're now stuck in this situation. So with the NBA owners, you're sitting there going, how the fuck do they know? The idiot that we have in the White House right now was talking about this no big deal. So the NBA was completely, just like the NBA and NHL and every other sports league out there were completely taken aback or completely caught off guard by this. So moving forward, those are some of the things that the players and the owners in the NBA are going to have to uh, have to sit down and, and talk about. Now, unlike Major League Baseball, the lack of trust which is going to be a serious obstacle to get to a solution. I, I think I know in the I know in the segment before I was speaking about that you know there's a chance that the major league baseball uh, major league baseball could hit a snag and maybe there might be a situation where they might not play. I, I, I want to put the percentage on that is somewhere around ten to fifteen percent. I just don't think the players are that dumb. I think eventually that the owners and players are just going to agree to something. Either the owners and players are going to agree to something or the owners around the middle of July or the end of July are going to cave and give in and just say, fuck it, let's just go ahead and do this thing. But I still, I, I think that there's going to be Major League Baseball. But you never know. You never know. You never know. But if there's not going to be Major League Baseball, you can point to the distrust that the players' union have with the has with the owners their lack of a, of a strong relationship in the NBA that's not the case Adam Silver and the and Michelle Roberts have a good relationship Chris Paul the president of the Players Union and Adam Silver have a strong relationship have a, has a good relationship of course there's going to be some butting of heads of course there's going to be some disagreements of course there's going to be some arguments welcome to negotiations but I think both sides the players and the owners when you're speaking about the NBA realize the importance of getting the season back and getting a season in financially and everything else historically for them to get this done. So I, I don't think in terms of um, a obstacle that the NBA's, you know, the, the financial situation or what's going to be happening financially, I don't think that's going to be a huge detriment for the NBA getting back on, getting back on track. So, yeah, man, you know, you got the Bundesliga that's starting up. You've got NASCAR, their races are starting up. We still have the UFC that's putting on uh, bouts. You have one coming on tonight with my man Alistair the Ream over Ream, the Walt Harris. My goodness gracious, Walt Harris, God bless you, man. God bless you. What happened to your goddaughter? God bless you. I mean, fucking horrible. Absolutely horrible. What man? I mean, the strength of that man, Walt Harris. How could you not cheer for that man, Walt Harris? in terms of what he had to go through. And now he's back on the octagon and doing this thing. I mean, it's, it's absolutely unbelievable. You're talking about the strength of character. Just, just speaking about, man, a man's man. 
I mean, that's, that's just mind-boggling to me. To lose your stepdaughter like that, I would be in a, I, I don't know, I mean, you know, you never know, you can never say, this is what, what I would do if I was in this situation until you actually are in this situation. But, I mean, for me, the closest thing for Walt Harris in terms of his stepdaughter getting killed, and I'm not going to even mention it because that's just, you know, karma or whatever. But, you know, I mean, God forbid, God forbid something happened to my goddaughter. I, I, uh, hmm, I, uh, I don't know, man. Me and the Lord would have to have a would have to have a serious talk because I would be like, man, I'm I'm not really happy with you right now, and uh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know exactly if I can keep, I don't know if I can keep up this relationship right now after what you did to Sydney. I I just can't. I I would be one one major wreck. Don't know if I could go on. I mean, really, the only thing that would really keep me going on is the fact that my mom is still alive. And I'm the only one she's got left. But, I mean, other than, other than that, if anything, anything happened to my goddaughter, uh, you know, I'm, first of all, I'm telling the Lord where to go and giving him the ticket to go there, which would be straight down. And then I'd uh, I'd go to Hog Wild, man. I would, I would go Hog Wild and just doing everything I could just to wreak havoc on just planet Earth if anything happened to my goddaughter. My guess. My guess. Again, wouldn't know, don't know. Until something like that happens. I don't want to know. But, uh, yeah, it wouldn't be good. That would be my guesstimation. So, Walt Harris, God bless you, man, for staying strong, staying strong for your wife and your family and doing what you need to do. And I saw a couple of interviews with him, and it's like unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. But he's not the only one. You know, I watch I watch the Discovery Channel. I watch Cold Case Files. I watch a lot of Bill Curtis stuff. I watch a lot of stuff about serial killers. I watch a lot about crime and justice. It's amazing, the strength that human beings have when they go through tragedies, tragedies like this. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. By the way, how the fuck did I get on this? Here I am talking, <laughs> here I am talking about the NBA, talking about selling roses. We got games coming back. Major League Baseball playing is going to start and this, that, and the other. And I'm up here positive, positive, positive. And then I start talking about death and my relationship with the Lord being being uh, in jeopardy if this happened and me going off the deep end. How the hell did I get into this? How the hell did I let, how did you let me sidetrack? How did you let me get off the rails like this? Yeah, I'm talking to you. How did this happen? I blame you. This is your fault. This is not my fault. It's your fault. So while I get back on the track, hit me with some music.
Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Yes, this is Wendell's World in Sports. Happy, happy, joy, joy. Happy, happy, joy, joy. So glad that you could be with us. I hope everything is doing well. I hope everything is doing good. One thing I mentioned before in the segment, make it quick. I'll make it quick. I know I want to get back to sports. I'm going to be talking about the next two episodes of The Last Dance chapters or episodes seven and eight, but real quickly, because right now in the background, I have uh, the Discovery Channel on, and if you don't know anything about the Discovery Channel, it's all about, you know, solving murders and everything like that, and I watch, I watch, as I mentioned before, I'm a, um, I'm a crime and justice guy, love criminal profilers, John Douglas, Roy Hazelwood, love those guys, um, in terms of criminal profiling, if I had any type of brains and wasn't so passionate about communicating and broadcasting and speaking about sports and others that I would love, absolutely love to be a criminal profiler, but um, I have the Discovery Channel on, and, you know, some of these shows are interesting, but man, when they do the dramatizations of this stuff, I don't know exactly where the the uh, Discovery Channel or the Investigative Discovery, whatever that, the ID channel, I don't know where you guys get your actors and actresses, but boy, they are bad. Man, they are bad, bad, bad. Hey, look, I'll be the first one to admit, look, I ain't Denzel, I ain't Tom Hanks, I ain't Morgan Freeman, I ain't Michael Douglas, okay? You know, I ain't Jamie Foxx, uh, all right? I'm, a, I'm not Eddie Murphy as an actor, okay? So, you know, I mean, I'm not gonna, I, I couldn't do any better in terms of being an actor and doing that kind of stuff, but boy, man, can't y'all like up your talent level a little bit? Some of this stuff, I mean, it's like, man, it, it, it's worse than soap opera actors in terms of these uh, dramatizations. You want to watch, but it's like, and why is it that the actors, like, you know, on Deadly Women and these other shows that they have, why is it that the actresses are always better looking or attractive than the actual people they're, they're portraying? Like, you know, you watch Deadly Women on the show. I'll get back to sports in a minute. Calm down. Jeez, you ain't going nowhere. So I'm watching Deadly Women, and, uh, you know, at the end, they always have this mean mug look at the camera. She was evil, and because of her wickedness, and because of her selfishness, and because of her greed, she's now going to be spending the rest of her life in jail. And they have the woman mean mug at the camera with the sinister, sadistic look, and it's like, boy, that's some bad fucking acting. And then they show the actual, sometimes they'll show the actual picture, and if they don't show the actual picture, i got my iPad right next to me, so I kind of type in the name to see exactly what she looks like, and it's like, man, you know, the actual person is a lot is a lot less attractive than the actor they have portraying her. Jeez, man, I mean, at least maybe get someone just a little bit less attractive? I mean, maybe, maybe that's just their way of punishing her, you know, maybe that's just the way of punishing these people, you know, not only are you in jail, not only are you evil, wicked, and terrible, and horrible human beings, we're also, when we're going to portray you, we're also going to have someone who's better looking while you sit, and you rot in jail, you're fired, Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, Biddy Mac, baby, Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us here on the podcast, all right, so I was discussing, I wanted to get into the next two episodes of The Last Dance, episodes seven and eight. What was discussed, they talked about Jordan's first retirement and the murder of his father. Horrible. Horrible James Jordan pulled off on the side road, catching nap and two punks, two pieces of garbage, went ahead and shot him in the chest, stole their money and stole his money and everything. So they also talked about the um, 
how it was journalism's best day in terms of the conspiracy theories and everything. And it kind of made me kind of go back a little bit and say, yeah, for as much as sometimes I dream that he is me, I just want to be like Mike and how we put him on a pedestal. It wasn't always putting him on a pedestal. I do remember that the trip to Atlantic City where, you know, he was being like, you know, lambasted for that and, you know, situations where he was gambling and what is he doing spending all this money gambling and all this kind of stuff and what's up with Mike and Sam Smith wrote, wrote the Jordan rules and everything. So as much as society put MJ on a pedestal, uh, there was a good, decent number of folks who also were trying to see what they could do to push him off that pedestal. And after his father died, very quickly, the rumors and the innuendos started about, well, I mean, could it be something about the mob and, you know, because of his gambling debts? And it's like, why in the fuck would an editor or a person at the newspaper, yes, for those who are younger, newspapers actually existed at one time. They were actually a pretty strong influence on our society. Columnists, very strong influences. Why in the world would you write some bullshit like that just based on innuendo, just based on rumor? I mean, no facts, no nothing. It was just based on, you know, like, well, you know, I mean, Slim Bowler, $57,000. Here's Jordan, a guy who likes to gamble a lot. I mean, you know, put two and two together and you get 11. What? I mean, it doesn't make, it just didn't make any sense. It was lowbrow. I mean, shit, man, even Skip Bayless doesn't even go that low in terms of trying to figure out what he could do to, you know, improve his argument or to make his argument. So speculation, even if someone has speculation, even if someone who, you know, might not have really been in the know, or maybe someone with that type of angle, or maybe with someone with that type of, you know, ire, would sit there and be like, well, you know what, maybe it was a situation where, you know, I mean, someone like James Jordan, he pulls over and he gets shot somewhere in North Carolina, South Carolina, or something like that. I mean, that, that doesn't make any sense. Obviously, it had to do something with Jordan not paying back any debts or Jordan not doing, it's like, what, where, where did you come up with that idea? Where's your evidence? Where, it's just all, like I said, it's all like talking out of your ass. So that stuff to be published only because, you know, it's Michael Jordan will get eyeballs on it. It's, you know, if, if it was weak, it was pathetic, it was ridiculous. It was, you know, I mean, it was uncalled for. It was a, you know, it's, it's, it's all those things and then some. And then the rumor about, you know, and they made clearly, because for a little bit, I really didn't believe it that much, but I, I put about 5% credence into the argument that, well, you know, David Stern, I mean, he had to suspend Michael Jordan for 18 months because, you know, after his father dying and everything and the situation with the gambling and all that kind of stuff. And it was always like, why the fuck would David Stern do that with Michael Jordan? Why are you going to... Why are you going to get rid of your, your your best basketball player and the guy who's a global icon and superstar? Why would you, why would you do something like that? I didn't make any it didn't make any sense. So in the, it would in the documentary, I forgot who said it, but he said it very well. It was like why would David Stern, the ultimate capitalist, who basically built his league on superstars? It wasn't the situation where, hey, watch this game because it's the Boston Celtics versus the Los Angeles Lakers. No, watch this game because it's Larry Bird versus Magic Johnson. A guy who based all of his based all of his philosophy or most of his philosophy on showcasing the superstars to bring the league back to prominence, you have the most recognizable athlete on the planet, a crossover superstar, a public figure of the highest degree 
Why in the fuck are you going to tell him to go somewhere else? Why in the fuck would you devalue the NBA champion, the Chicago Bulls? Why would you tell Michael Jordan in the prime of his career because you made a few gambling bets with people who might not be, you know, uh, uh, might not be, you know, nuns and priests. And right now priests are kind of like, I don't even know if I should use that example. But for the most part, why are you going to, uh, why are you going to get rid of the guy? It, it made absolutely fucking no sense. Jordan wasn't being investigated. It wasn't a situation like the feds were on him or there was some type of a uh, situation like that. So why would David Stern then say, well, we're just going to suspend you. Oh, and by the way, while you're suspended, go ahead and play baseball. Why, why, why would you do that? I mean, after watching, I, when I saw the, I remember being back in the day when that stuff was going down. It was just a situation where I thought the guy was just burned out. He had won three championships. He played for the dream team. I mean, I mean, the whole situation. I mean, my, be, being Michael Jordan at the level that he was, as it was documented in the in the um, in the documentary, it was like, yeah, I could see where this guy was like, look, man, I'm, I'm I need a break. I need a, and his father being murdered after that? Yeah, I can understand where he's like, look, I, I need a break. I can't do this anymore. And even during the press conference, I completely forgot where he was kind of like, yeah, I'm retiring, but, you know, if I feel like playing again, I'll come back and play again. Well, if you're, I mean, are you, I mean, this is the time where we didn't have the internet and social media and all this kind of stuff or, you know, the talking head shows as much prominence and everything, but it was almost like, well, okay, so what you're saying more is that you're taking a break. Now, you don't know how long that break is going to be. It could be one year. It could be five years. It could be 10 years. It could be forever. You don't know. But to me, when someone retires, they are retired in terms of I am done. I have no interest. Zero. Zip. I am not coming back under any circumstance. I am done. Jordan never said that. He was like, look, you know, the game of basketball was great. It was wonderful. I, I want to do one thing. I've lost my desire and my passion and my drive to play basketball. So... I guess that means I'm done. Well, what happens? And, and because he was still in the prime of his career, he could afford to take a year or two or three or four to do something else before that desire came back again. So uh, it was interesting in terms of, I, I, I remember being skeptical because I just remember watching him being like, well, wait a minute, man, that guy's, that guy's far too young to be retiring. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, my guess is going to be that he, he eventually he's going to come back when. I don't know. But, you know, I, I watch too much boxing to be sitting there talking about, yeah, Jordan's done. I mean, players that age don't retire. Barry Sanders was still great. But, you know, he was on the back nine of his career, which shows you how great he was. The only person that would come close to that and stuck with it was Jim Brown. But what Jim Brown was doing when he retired from the Cleveland Browns back in 1965, he had much bigger fish to fry, and he wasn't making the type of money, and he didn't have the same influence of being an athlete that Michael Jordan would have to make change in the community and the society. So Jim Brown was like, you know what, I gave nine years. Plus, you were talking about playing with playing football, a much more physical sport than basketball. And again, you're talking about a time in 1965 when you had the civil rights movements where it was legalized for black folks to be second-class citizens, where you needed you know, someone of a Jim Brown stature who could go ahead and lend his time and lend his name and lend his passion to other things concerning the community and the society of the world. And you could go off and you could go to Hollywood and you could kiss on Raquel Welch and make great movies and make much more money than you could as if you were a football player playing in Cleveland, Ohio. So the whole dynamic or the whole similarities and differences between 1965 when Jim Brown retired 
And then the 19, what, 93, 94, whenever when Michael Jordan retired the first time is a lot, lot different. So, yeah, did you see Tick, Tick, Boom? Yeah, Jim Brown was a guy who was, who was a pretty good actor. Pretty good actor, I must add. So, yeah, so when Michael Jordan said that he was going to go ahead and retire and everything like that, I was like, eh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think that's really going to be happening. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, the podcast. So glad that you could be with us. Hey, you know what? Um, What were you doing? Was, was that a what was I doing moment for you when he announced his retirement? It was interesting to hear what they like, oh, my goodness, I was in school and I was in shock. And it was such a big deal. And it was front page news and everything like that. I, I knew it was front page news at the time. But to me, it was shocking. But it wasn't like, oh, my gosh. Where was I that time when Michael Jordan announced his retirement? Oh, my goodness. I, I don't remember. I remember the emotions that I felt when he announced his retirement. It was a mixture of sadness and happiness and hopefulness and relief. I say hopefulness and happiness because when he retired, the first thing I thought about was, all right, now Patrick Ewing has a chance to win a championship finally. Let's go, let's go, let's go. He should have beaten him last season if it wasn't for Charles fucking Smith. Now with Jordan gone, let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's get P.E. a chance to ring, win that ring, baby, Georgetown University. So that was my first emotion. That was my first thought. So that's where the happiness and the hopefulness came in. Now, maybe Ewing can get a couple of championships. Little did I know there was a guy named Akeem Olajuwon sitting in Houston that was going to say, no, 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 I don't think so. And there was a guy named John Starks who went, I don't know what, three, four, 125 in game six. Jesus! or was it game six or game seven, one of those two, where he basically shot the Knicks out of a shot to win the championship. No, no, no hard feelings there, John. No hard feelings, but, you know, you you know, you, you threw away an opportunity for my man Patrick Ewing to win a championship in the NBA, but that's fine. I'm quite sure people would be sitting and, sitting there putting an asterisk behind it because he won it when Jordan wasn't playing, but I digress. But so, when Jordan announced his retirement, happiness, hopeful, Ewing has a chance to win the championship. I was also, also relieved. Because also at that time, I came on the Jordan train a lot late when it came to the praising and the deifying and the glorification and, oh my goodness, he's so great, Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan. I was one of these guys who was going to be a hard-headed, stubborn Magic Johnson fan. So when Michael Jordan announced his retirement, it was relief mixed with happiness and hopefulness, or not hopefulness, but happiness and relief because I was like, woo, thank goodness, I can still defend my... My man, Magic Johnson, because he won more championships. At the time, Jordan won three, Magic had won five, and I couldn't defend him as a basketball player in terms of, well, okay, Jordan's a better athlete, Jordan's a better shooter, Jordan's a better defender, Jordan's a better this, Jordan's a better that. The only thing that I had left in my argument, as numbskullish and as ridiculous and as head-scratching as it could be, for me, it was, you know what, I'll still take Magic over MJY because Magic is more of a winner. Five championships, the three championships, baby. That's what I'm talking about. So that was also another emotion that I had when Michael Jordan uh, announced his retirement. It was like, whoo, I can still keep up the charade. I can, in, my, in my heart and in my head, I can still keep up the charade that Michael Jordan was not as great as a basketball player as Magic Johnson. Well, you know, I mean, what can they say, man? When you're young and you're dumb, what can I, what can I say? But I was also filled with sadness when Jordan announced his retirement the first time because I still wanted to see him play. As much as I hated the fucking Chicago Bulls, because once again, he was gaining close on Magic in terms of who was the better basketball player. At the time, I thought that Magic was the best basketball player who ever lived. And now you got this guy, Michael Jordan, who's gaining, gaining fast 
on that moniker for uh, Magic. So I was kind of like, come on, man. Someone beat this guy. Well, yeah, someone do something. Magic's legacy is at stake here. Someone, Patrick Ewing, Gary Payton, somebody beat this guy. Well, yeah, shit. But, uh, you know, it, it, you know, every year, you know, they, they would beat the Knicks and Patrick Ewing. I was like, God damn it. So, but even with all of that, I still wanted to see him play. I still wanted to see him compete, and I still wanted to say, because I truly believed again that the Knicks could have beaten the Bulls with Patrick Ewing. So it was like, yeah, man, or with Michael Jordan being with the Bulls. So I was like, yeah, man, come on, man. No, Jordan, don't quit. I want Ewing to take you out, man. I want this dynasty, or I want this run that you're going on right now to end because Patrick Ewing took you out the pasture in old yellow grass. Don't be quitting. Don't be running. Don't be giving up. I still want to see, it was about more about that competition. You know, I was past the age where I would run out on the basketball court and try to do the moves of a Michael Jordan. I was too old for that. My dreams and aspirations of playing in the NBA, that was over with. I was in my mid-20s at the time when Jordan was doing his thing. You know, I grew up, you know, if I wanted to run outside and be inspired to pick up a basketball and shoot around and try to do their moves, that was based on Len Bias. That was based on Albert King. That was based on... Uh, Bernard King and, uh, and, and James Worthy and Byron Scott and Magic Johnson and those guys, David Wingate, Reggie Williams, the great, the legendary, the fantastic, my hero, my idol, as far as athletics is concerned, Len Bias. That was, those were my guys that made me want to run out and play basketball. Those were my, those were my guys that made me dream to aspire to go to Georgetown University and play for John Thompson Jr., to go to the NBA and play for the Los Angeles Lakers and then hook up with someone like an Emma Sams or an ORA and uh, have sex with them 25 hours a day. I mean, those were my inspirations to go ahead and have those unrealistic uh, dreams. So Jordan, for his generation, yeah, when I can understand, uh, but I was too old to be influenced by Michael Jordan to say, I want to be like Mike. I'm too old to be like Mike. I want to be like Mike in terms of the money he makes. I want to be like Mike in terms of what I could do with his power and influence. I want to be like Mike in terms of some of the women I could have access to. But just in terms of being a basketball player, my dreams of being in the NBA and all that kind of stuff, that was gone. By that time, I was just playing basketball once or twice a week over at the uh, park, over at the Sligo Recreational Park with Steve Smith and those guys and, and getting my run on and, and playing basketball then. That was, that was long gone. So for me... It wasn't the sadness of seeing Michael Jordan leave because I still wanted to see him play. It had nothing to do with me wanting to be like Mike the basketball player. It was more like I wanted to see Patrick Ewing, the New York Knicks, or fucking somebody put an end to the Michael Jordan run so, again, I could preserve my, my love affair that I had with Magic Johnson, the basketball player, being my all-time basketball player favorite behind the great, the legendary, the awesome Len Bias. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So I was speaking about um, Jordan's retirement the first time. And I was sitting to myself going, what was exactly? Because people were talking about, oh, I remember when Jordan announced his retirement. I was, and I was like, when was, when was the time that, damn, when was there a time in sports where I was kind of like, remember when? I mean, for me, in my lifetime, I mean, I remember Thurman Munson. Um, well, he died in that plane crash. But other than that, I remember Lyman Bostock when he got murdered in uh, East St. Louis. 
He was a ball player for the Anaheim Angels and I think the Minnesota Twins. He was a, he, he played for uh, Anaheim. He played first. Lyman Bostock first played with the Minnesota Twins with Rod Carew. I don't I don't know why. I like Lyman Bostock at the time. That's too far. That was too far ago for me to remember. But I remember when he got shot. I was like, damn, ain't that a fucking bitch? I remember hearing about Donnie Moore, where he killed himself. Uh, the pitcher for the Anaheim Angels who gave up the opportunity for the Angels to play in the World Series when Dave Henderson hit that bomb against him in, in uh, Game 6 or Game 5 of the um, playoffs against the Red Sox. I remember when he shot himself. That was interesting. But really, for me, what really touched me the most as far as the sports dates that I remember the most is June 19th, 21st, somewhere around there, 1986, the death of Len Bias. Still haunts me. I still get emotional about that. Podcast uh, will be coming up about that in June the around that time. And also when Magic Johnson announced that he had the HIV virus. That was that was just crazy, man. That was back in November of 1991. I remember that. I was on the campus of... Shit, where was I? I was on the campus of... Yeah, I remember that day vividly. Where was I, by the way? I was on the campus of Cal State Hayward. And my uncle, Uncle John, Uncle Jonathan was uh, the coach up there at the time. And I had just gone up there just to get away from, you know, living life and having fun and, you know, hanging out with my boys, you know, Bart Lawrence and Chris Ortiz and Marvin Prather and those guys. So I went up there to have some fun and just that and the other. And I was just bullshitting around with life. You know, I had a job. I wasn't going back to school. So I remember going to the campus. I remember because I was going to go see Marv, who was down on the field. And we would normally throw the football around or, you know, do whatever. And I remember I got a call, or I remember running into Jim, a guy named Jim Veronis. And he was like, man, did you hear about Magic Johnson? I was like, no, because at the time, Magic was still playing for the Lakers. I mean, nothing really that, you know, nothing really unordinary about anything. So he said, did you hear about Magic? I go, no, what about him? He's got AIDS. Like, what? Yeah, man, Magic announced that he had AIDS. You gotta remember, this was before cell phones, this was before the internet in terms of uh, Twitter and all this other stuff like we know of today. I didn't have a cell phone, I don't think cell phones were even around. Like I said, I was walking around, the, I was walking from the campus down to the athletic field to hang out with Marv, and I said, for some reason I ran into Jim Veronis. What, would, what Jim Veronis was doing up there at Cal State Hayward, I have no idea, but I just remember him saying, Magic had AIDS, I was like, what? That's bullshit, man, get out of here, I don't believe it. So, went down, saw Marv, and was like, Marv, did you hear anything about Magic having AIDS? Because no. It's like, what? What is Jim talking about? Is he just joking? What's up with that? Just that and the other. But it just didn't, I mean, it was just didn't really register. Like, why, why, where, would, where did that come from? Hey, Wendell, how you doing? By the way, Magic has AIDS. Ha, 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 ha. I mean, that doesn't sound funny or doesn't sound like Veronis. So, just as, just to appease my, this is bullshit, this is nonsense. Let me turn on the radio. How about that there, folks? Let me turn on the radio and, and see what the hell's going on in there. Because if he does have AIDS, then that's going to be a major news story. So let me see. Let me turn on the radio and find out. There's no way that he could. Holy shit. That's why I turned on the radio when I was listening to the broadcast. Holy shit. Barf! Barf, come here. Listen to this shit, man. Holy shit. Someone get me to a television. Someone get me to a television and let me turn on ESPN. What the fuck is, and I just, you know, it was like unbelievable, unbelievable that day that I found out that um, Magic had the HIV virus. Same thing with Len Bias, man. I was, what, 17 when Len Bias died? And my man David O'Neill called me up and he was talking about, did you hear the news? Len Bias died. I was like, ha, 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 very funny, man. Get the fuck out of here. 
What are you talking about? He died. He just got drafted by the Boston Celtics. He didn't die. What are you talking about? He's 21 years old. He's a horse. 6'8", 240 pounds. He can jump out of the gym. He's got a chiseled physique. What are you talking about? I just saw him do an unbelievable dunk in his last game against Pepperdine. What are you talking about? I remember that shot that he had against North Carolina, and then he stole the inbound path, and he first dunked it over Wayne Martin, who was 7 feet tall. What are you talking about? He's dead. He's too young. He's too great. He's too letty to be dead. What did he die of? Just, 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 just to humor me even more, even though this is a bad fucking joke. What did he die of? They say he died of a heart attack. All right, man, I'm hanging up on you. Get the fuck out of here. Len Bias died of a heart attack. Really? That was the initial report. Len Bias died of a heart attack. Come on, man, get out of here. Look, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to shower. It was the summer, so during those times, we always went out and played ball, right? Look, man, I'm going to go play ball. You going to the? You going to go up to the? Um, you're going to go up to Belpre and play with me before it gets too hot? What are you going to do today? You're going to hang out? What, you're too sad about Lynn Bias dying? Yeah, right. All right, man. I'm going to the uh, park. I'll be shooting around. If you want to join me, join me. All right? I'm out of here. Bye. Why would O'Neal fucking say some shit like that? Why, Len Bias dying? Of a heart attack? No, I can't be. I, let, me turn on, let me turn on the news here. Let me, once again, if Len Bias died, then this is going to be the frontline news story. This is some... Let me turn on uh, 95.3 WPGC and listen to Downey something here. Ain't no fucking way Len Bias died, okay? And I, Oh, my fucking goodness gracious, he fucking died. We want to give our condolences to the Len Bias family. Oh, my fucking God, he died. Oh, shit, he died. And as soon as he said that, as soon as I heard that report, Downey Simpson, the morning show on 95.3 WKYS, as soon as I heard that, my phone, not my, it wasn't my phone, my parents' phone started ringing off the hook. The home phone started ringing off the hook. And it was Mikkel, and it was Steve, and it was Hayden, it was Cliff, it was Kevin, it was Sean, it was my mom, it was my dad, it was everybody. Boom, 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 back to back to back. Did you hear what happened to Lenny? Did you hear what happened to Lenny? Did you hear what happened to Lenny? I can't believe it. Did you hear what happened to Lenny? It was just, I, I, I fuck playing basketball this morning. I, I, I just, I, I blew my mind. Did you hear what happened to Lenny? A heart attack. How the fuck did it, did it, did it, did it, 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 unbelievable. I think, I think, I think we walked around in a, in a fog or a coma for like a week. Not my mom and dad, but you know, we, we, people my age, you know, I mean, people who loved them, people around the area. I mean, Lenny was our own. We walked around in like a fog for like a week. We couldn't do anything. All we did was just sit in each other's house during the summer and we just sit there, listen to Anita Baker records and just, Sat there and just said, I can't believe he's gone. I can't believe he's dead. I can't believe it. And then they found out that, you know, he died of a cocaine overdose. It was like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Lenny's gone. He can't. No. Is there any way that we can resuscitate him? I mean, can you pull him from the morgue and do something to restart his heart again? I can't live without Lenny Bias. It was one of those deals. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But, yeah, those were the two, like, I can't believe it. I remember where that was moments. It wasn't when Michael Jordan announced his retirement. That I know for sure. I also remember where I was when Kobe Bryant died, but that's more recent. But, uh, yeah, that was, uh, I, I, as I mentioned before, that was more when Jordan retired. It was, okay, Ewing, you have your chance. But, damn, I sure wish you could have beaten Jordan to do that. So, that's my, that was my thoughts about that. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad you are with us. Now speaking about the last documentary, the latest two episodes of The Last Dance Michael Jordan documentary in the Chicago Bulls. Yeah, basically, he needed a break. Speaking about the first time he retired, 
You're tired of being a global superstar. I can, I can understand that. I, I really do, man. Again, give me Jordan's life in terms of the money, in terms of the women access, in terms of the things I could have done with my power to influence others. You know, maybe go down to a couple. I would love to if I had the money. If I had Jordan money, if I was making 30-something million dollars a year. I mean, I would do something in terms of, and maybe I would get a Bill Gates type of person or a Warren Buffett type of person. I would love to see what I can do. Take a block or, or take a school or take something in terms of the black community, in terms of some of the poverty-written things in the black community. You go down to North Las Vegas, you know, and you see some of the neighborhoods, the quote-unquote poorer neighborhoods in, say, North Las Vegas or East Las Vegas. And then you go up to maybe the southwest side of town or maybe Summerlin, the rich side of town. And it's like these neighborhoods are, as far as looking is concerned, they're not that different, really, if you think about it. Now, when you hit the richy rich area, if you go up West Flamingo and you go all the way up, or you go to Charleston and you go all the way up, I mean, you're going to be hitting some big mansions and everything like that. But even in the real nice areas, even in the upper middle class areas, the houses there are similar to the ones that you'll see in North Las Vegas. But the yards are nicer. The, 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 the houses themselves are more well-kept and everything. The, the, the streets are a little bit cleaner. The streets are a little bit nicer. And I'm quite sure that they take care of the houses in Summerlin a lot better than they do down on, uh, down on Main Street or down on, um, down on Eastern and... Eastern in Nellis or Eastern in, uh, in uh, Las Vegas Boulevard down there. You know, I'm thinking to myself, I would love to see what I could do. I would just love to take this block, this one block right here, and interview these folks and say, all right, what's going on? What's happening? You know, I would love to go into these people's houses and say, all right, what's going on? What's happening? What do you need to be refurbished? What do you need to be remodeled? What do you need to do to make this place a little bit better so it can be looking more like, the places that I see over in Summerlin. Because the house sizes, again, we're speaking about, again, the lower class neighborhoods compared to the upper middle class. We're not talking about the rich. We're not talking about those neighborhoods. But there's plenty of places, and I see this, I saw this all the time when I was in D.C. I saw this when I was in San Diego. I saw this when I was in Missouri. I saw this all over, whenever I, wherever I lived. You know, the difference between a poor ghetto neighborhood and a, not well-to-do, but a solid middle to middle upper class neighborhoods are not really that much different. So with my influence, if I could be Michael Jordan, if I had that money and I had access to Bill Gates and I had access to Phil Knight and I had access to those who had some real money in terms of to be able to be able to make a difference, I would take one block of a place in Miami, Florida, or a place in Dallas, Texas, or a place in Kansas City, Kansas, or a place in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Go through that neighborhood and say, all right, what do we need to do? What do we need to fix in terms of making this neighborhood better? What do we need? That's what I would do. So that whole spiel and scrambly speech that I gave and my thoughts and feelings about that have to deal with if I had Michael Jordan's money influence. And again, while I was taking care of all of these things, I would be banging beautiful ladies left and right at the time in my mid-20s. Single, come on. So that's being like Mike would be for me. But the, everything else that went with that, I don't think I could, I don't think I would last. I mean, I don't think that I could really last as long as Jordan has. I don't, I wouldn't have the patience. Just when he's walking off the court, you see the, you see at the time when he's walking off the court, the people touching him, 
or the people with their hands out as he's walking off the court or walking off the arena into the locker rooms and such. The people who want to touch him and everything, that would fucking freak me out. I remember watching one episode where he was walking off the court and one of these kids grabbed his head. That would have fucking flipped me out. I mean, I would have exploded. Hey, motherfucker, what the fuck are you doing? Don't be fucking touching me. I mean, I would have, you know, wouldn't have been good, you know, but I would have gone Russell Westbrook on his ass. Hey, don't be fucking touching me. You understand? You fucking touch me one more time. I'll break your fucking hand. You understand me? The fuck your problem? I mean, that would have been my mentality. At the, would, you know, that, that, that whole touching thing is just like, that would have driven me nuts. And Jordan got that all the time and having to be on all the time. You know, it just would have worn me out. Would have worn me out. So I can understand that, you know, Jordan needed a break from basketball at that time. And, and he packaged it in the fact that he was he was uh, retired. And then when you lose your rock, like your father, I mean, that had to be hard. In the manner that he did, I mean, I still struggle emotionally. And my dad, who died at 90, and the some of the best way possible. He didn't suffer. He didn't have a long illness. He did everything that he wanted to do. He was still in relatively good health. When he died at 90, you know, I had an opportunity to spend 48, 49 years with him. And to this day, I'm still, you know, working through it. I'm, I mean, I think about him every day and I still, my heart still aches when I do that. So I can only imagine what I, what kind of a wreck I, wreck I would be if my dad went the way that Michael Jordan's dad did, just like you would do the same thing. So I can understand, you know, he had the access, he had the ability to be like, look, man, I just, I just need to break from all this. I just need to go ahead and do something else. And, you know, the fact that, and I think those who, including myself, including myself, I was one of those who laughed at him and scoffed and thought it was ridiculous when he went out, went ahead and played for baseball. So I'll put myself in that, uh, I'll put myself in that category. I'll put myself in that, uh, that aim of fire to be ridiculed and to be, uh, you know, to, to admonished for that. But when he decided to go to try play baseball and it was like, oh, this is ridiculous, this is a joke, and the whole Sports Illustrated thing about Bag and Michael and everything, hey, look, man, you know what? Rich people get, can do that, you know? And thank goodness this rich person actually had to be a black man, which makes it even a little bit sweeter, I guess. The fact that, you know, you have the, when you're rich and you're famous, you can go ahead and do those things. Well, he took a spot from a guy who was trying to chase a dream. Well, number one, Michael Jordan was trying to chase a dream at that time to be a baseball player. That's what his fa father wanted. And the fact that he was probably taking a, a spot for someone who wasn't going to make the team anyway. I, I, I seriously doubt that the Chicago White Sox organization would have said, let's give this spot in spring training to Michael Jordan and we'll get rid of this other guy who can really go ahead and help our program or be the guy who can make it to the major leagues and really be a valuable asset for our team. Michael Jordan was taking the spot of a guy who probably had zero chance of making the squad, of going from double A to playing in the major leagues. Thank goodness he's rich. Thank goodness he's famous. Thank goodness he's Michael Jordan. I can't do that. You can't do that. Everybody you know can't do that. Everybody I know can't do that. One of the great things about being rich, one of the great things about being famous, and he used his rich and famous card to go ahead and do that. And before we start sitting there blaming the guy, or sitting there starting to ridicule the guy, he used his rich and famous card just like I would have if I was in that same situation. If I wanted to go ahead and do something and I had to play that card, you're damn right I would have played it. We all play cards when we're talking about that. Any card that we can play to get us something that we want, we go ahead and play it. 
We don't worry about the other persons in terms of what they're going to be going through. Fuck no. If we need a job, and we're gonna, if we can get it by nefarious reasons or, or get it being, being it underhanded, we're going to go ahead and play that card. You know, if we're going to, if you have to play the the race card, and when I say race card, I'm talking about, hey, you know what, white guy, white privilege, let me play that card so I can get the job over the black guy. I'm going to go ahead and do it. You know, if I can get the job over, you know, be, you know uh, if I'm a woman and if I can get this job because I'm better looking than the other person who's doing that, and I'm going to go ahead and in my interview and I'm going to be go ahead and I'm going to be looking all dolled up and I'm going to be wearing a tight-fitting dress and some high heels and looking sexy as hell, play that card. Play that card. If it came down between, play it. Go ahead and play it. So, you know, I, Jordan played this rich and famous card to get a position that probably 98% of the population in this world wouldn't get. Good for him. Hey, man, if you got it, use it. So and not, I'm not blaming the guy for that one. Now, now I'm not blaming the guy for that one, but because, you know, because Jordan hit that shot against Georgetown when he was a freshman at North Carolina against Patrick Ewing, you know, I held that grudge against him for a long time. So, yes, I was one of those who ignorantly was sitting up there criticizing him. So at that time, I was very ignorant and very stupid and very ridiculous for what I was doing in terms of saying, oh, this is a joke. This is a, I mean, this is ridiculous. What is he doing? This is a waste of time. You should go ahead and do something else. Yes, I, Wendell Wallace, that take, that thought, that opinion that I gave at that time back in 1995 was ignorant. It was stupid. It was ridiculous. It was everything else in between. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Don't worry about it. I'm quite sure you're listening to this podcast saying, what the fuck are you talking about, man? You say things that are ignorant and stupid and everything. Every time you, every 15 seconds on this podcast, what are you talking about? You're going to fall back to 1995, 1996 to, to give us an example of when you said something that was stupid or you thought something that was stupid? Man, your bullshit about Major League Baseball and the NBA was fucking nuts. So fuck you. Okay, gotcha. So speaking about Michael Jordan playing Major League Baseball, so the question was, or the question then came up, without the Major League Baseball strike that happened in 1994, would Jordan have come back to play basketball? And I remember Jerry Reinsdorf and Terry Francona talking about, yeah, if Michael Jordan would have stuck to baseball, then eventually he would have been playing for the Chicago White Sox or he could have been on a Major League roster. I Now, I'm not a scout. I'm not... My guess would be is that I don't think Michael Jordan would have ever made it as a Major League Baseball player because Michael Jordan couldn't be Michael Jordan if he played baseball. Michael Jordan couldn't be the alpha dog, the man, the world revolves around me. I'm the shit. I'm the best motherfucker there is out there. No one can touch my ass. You can't touch this. Michael Jordan wouldn't have been that in baseball like he was in basketball. And when you're that great for that long, I don't know if you can make that transition to be just, you know, to be all of a sudden you go from being the ultimate alpha dog for a guy now who has to go follow. Now all of a sudden you're not the leader, you're the follower. You know, you're used to running the, you're used to running organizations. You're used to being the king of your teammates and everything like that. If you made it to Major League Baseball, if you made it to the Chicago White Sox at that time or any uh, team out there in Major League Baseball, that's not happening. Michael Jordan, the baseball player, is nowhere close, would be nowhere close to being uh, Michael Jordan, the basketball player. He would have to be Babe Ruthian to equal that. So I don't think that alpha dog, I don't think he, he would have taken well to leaning on somebody else. The 1995 Chicago White Sox, 
I think got Frank Thomas at the time, Robin Ventura, uh, Ozzy Guillen. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Michael Jordan could have walked into that clubhouse with those guys. It would have been like, all right, guys, it's going to be like like I was when I was with the Chicago Bulls. Everything's going to revolve around me. I'm the guy. I'm the Frank Thomas would have been like, shit. <laughs> Sorry, Mike, you ain't playing basketball no more, motherfucker. You're in my domain. You're in my country. You're in my world, bitch. You better do what the fuck I say. Man, Big Hurt ain't playing. They don't call me the Brick Hurt for nothing. <laughs> so, and Robin Ventura, I mean, you know, ask Nolan Ryan. He didn't take no shit. Nolan Ryan, I mean, Robin Ventura was willing to get his ass whooped by a 40-something-year-old man to make his point. Ozzy Guillen, another spirited guy. I don't think he would have, uh, I don't think ego-wise or mentality-wise, I don't think he would have been like, sure, Mike. Oh, Michael Jordan, the guy who hit 202 in AA baseball. Yeah, sure, come on up to our clubhouse and start running things. Yeah, sure, no problem. Yeah, sure, you can have a presence in here. Yeah, no big deal. Shit. Don't don't think that would have happened. So, um, I think in all actuality, yeah, I, 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 it was nice. Jordan got his fill of playing. I don't mean Phil Jackson. Jordan got his fill of playing with, playing baseball, fulfilling a promise that he made to his dad, and he missed a game. And I also think, again, I think he missed being Michael Jordan. I just think that he missed being the man. I mean, it's pretty hard to, you know, walk away when there's something where you're that good. Very few people who have ever walked this planet have been that good at something that they do that Michael Jordan has when he was playing basketball. Not too many people. So, yeah, it was just a matter of, you know, a matter of when in, uh, not if, Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Something else, um, talking about Michael Jordan. How about Michael Jordan, the teammate, huh? How about Michael Jordan, the teammate? Was Jim MJ a great teammate? Was he a great guy? Can you even be both at the same time? Michael Jordan being the teammate, being a leader, being a nice guy. Was he a nice guy? He couldn't have been nice. With that kind of mentality he had, he can't be a nice guy. He would be difficult to be around if you didn't truly love the game of basketball. He is difficult. Through the years, you think that intensity has come at the expense of being perceived as a nice guy? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, winning has a price. And leadership has a price. So I pulled people along when they didn't want to be pulled. I challenge people when they don't want to be challenged. And I earned that right because my teammates came after me. They didn't endure all the things that I endured. Once you join the team, you live at a certain standard that I played the game. And I wasn't going to take anything less. Now, that means I had to go in there and get in your ass a little bit. And I did that. all my teammates one thing about Michael Jordan was he never asked me to do something that he didn't fucking do when people see this they're gonna say well he wasn't really a nice guy he may have been a tyrant oh well that's you because you never wanted anything I wanted to win but I wanted them to win and be a part of that as well look I don't have to do this I'm only doing it because it is who I am that's how I played the game That was my mentality.
play that way? Don't play that way. Bricked. He cares, doesn't he? Still to this day. He cares, man. That's passion. That is some true passion right there. Now, from the audio, BJ talking about how he couldn't have been nice because of his mentality and his love for basketball and competition. That's true. And Jordan talked about, you know, how being a winner and being a leader doesn't mix into being a nice guy. And, and, and that's true. Anytime that you're in a position of leadership, then you, it's, it's hard to, I mean, here we go. You're a parent, right? When you're, you're dealing with your children, can you, be your, can you be their best friend all the time? Can you be a nice guy or a nice gal all the time? No. Sometimes being a leader, sometimes doing what you need to do, sometimes means you have to be an asshole. It doesn't mean that you are an asshole, but sometimes for you know you have you're going to have to do things that are going to have the perception of you being an asshole. But that's exactly what you need to do. Does the end justify the means? In Jordan's mentality, in Jordan's case, yeah, it does. So, and Jordan talked about you know I earned the right to be an asshole. I earned the right to lean on people. I earned the right to chew somebody out. I earned the right to be a bully. I earned the right to do all those things because. I was the one who laid down the foundation for my future teammates to enjoy the success. I mean, they weren't around when I was getting beat by the Boston Celtics. They weren't around when I had to miss 64 games my second year because of a broken foot. They weren't around when we were getting beat up by the Detroit Pistons. They weren't around for any of those times. They weren't around for any of those games. They weren't around for the pain, the suffering, the foundation that had to be built for us to be the team that we are today or build the foundation that mainly I built for them to be the team that we are today you know if it wasn't for me going through what I went through going through the pain going through the criticism going through the losses going through the physical and mental injuries and the grind that I had to go through to get to where I am today so I can take a Steve Kerr I can take a Bill Wennington I can take a Scott Burrell I can take these guys on a magical trip on that magical journey where I can give them that shine where I can give them that spotlight where I can give them that audience they weren't there when I was playing with Granville Waiters and Brad Sellers. They weren't there when I was being coached by Stan Albeck. They weren't there when I was being when my teammates were Orlando Woolridge and Quentin Daly. They weren't there when I was walking in as a as a rookie into a into a hotel room and my teammates were there sniffing blow and fucking bitches and told me to get the hell out of there. They were more interested in that than winning basketball games. They weren't around when I was playing at Market Square Arena in front of basically nobody. They weren't around when I was only winning 30 games a season and Magic and Bird were the kings of the NBA. They weren't around when I was building my legacy, when I was building my greatness, when I was building what you guys are reaping today. So, yeah. So, you know, you guys come in, you guys think you're going to be lollygagging and riding my coattails and riding my shoulders, shoulders to fame and fortune and glory? Fuck you. Hell no. You guys are going to have to go through the same shit similar to what I went through. Now, I'm not going to go back in terms of losing. I'm not going back for you guys to feel the pain that I went through by losing on a basketball court. So the only way that I can kind of simulate that is every day in practice, we're going to go through hell. Every day in practice, when we scrimmage, it's going to be like a war. And I'm going to be the general. And I'm going to be everything. And I'm going to be all up in your ass. So with Jordan, okay, I, 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 I see that. I get that. Understand it. Understand that mentality. I might not agree with that. I might say that's, that's, that's a little bit that's a little bit much, but I, I definitely get 
understand where he's coming from. And, you know, he, he was the tone setter. He was the one who set the, the tone for the team. So the tone that he was setting was hard work. And B.J. Armstrong said, you know, he was a great guy. If you were passionate about basketball, if you cared about basketball, you know, if you cared about winning, if you were passionate about winning, if you put in the time and the effort and the dedication to win, I don't think Jordan was that, that horrible of a human being. I think also what happened was Jordan was so great It's the fact that, you know, even it was almost like, I'm great, but you guys should be better than what you are right now. So because of that, obviously you're not working hard enough. Obviously you're not doing the things that you need to do. So because of that, I'm going to have to be the one that's going to have to constantly push you to go to a place where you don't, you don't think that you can go. And if that means me being an asshole, well, then that's the way we're going to, that's the way it's going to be. But again, this is nothing new in sports, you know, especially in basketball. This, there's nothing new in sports here well, about Jordan sometimes being a tyrant, sometimes being a bully. That's the, I mean, name me, again, name me a superstar, maybe with the exception of Tim Duncan and Derek Jeter. Name me a superstar who couldn't be a tyrant, who couldn't be an asshole, who couldn't be difficult to play with, who demanded a lot, and if you didn't give what he thought he, you should be given, would get in your ass, who would chew you out, who would curse you out, who would embarrass you. Name me a superstar who wasn't like that. Bill Russell, I remember Red Auerbach talking about, you know what, Bill Russell, we have two sets of rules, one for him, one for everybody else. Bill Russell was sitting down one day after practice. He said, hey, Red, guess what? I, I played 48 minutes against Wilt last night. We're practicing now. I'm really not in the mood. I'm going to go over and take the day off. And Red was like, sure, fine, no problem. And meanwhile, Casey Jones and Sam Jones and John Havlicek and Tom Heitzen and Frank Ramsey and all these guys were up there running sprints and doing everything. And Sam Jones says, hey, Red, why are we up here practicing and playing hard? And, and, Bill's, and Russ is up there sitting down, you know, reading the paper and drinking coffee. And now back blew his whistle, and he's like, let me explain each to each and every one of you. There were two sets of rules on this team. One for him, and he pointed to Russell, and one for everybody else. You got that? Everybody understand? It's the way it goes. I mean, Wilt Chamberlain, I told you the story about, hey, look, I'm only going to the for shoot-around with Bill Sharman. Hey, you tell Coach, I'm going to the arena one time. Does he want me there for the game, or does he want me there for shoot-around? Because I ain't going to both. So you run ahead and tell Bill, that's exactly what we're doing. Magic Johnson could chew your ass out. Magic Johnson could get in your ass. Just ask Lale Diva. I mean, he didn't play around. That's Mike Schmeck. He didn't play around. Larry Bird, that's Danny Ainge. He could get in your ass if you weren't given everything that he's got. A guy after he um, lost game three, 135-104 to the Los Angeles Lakers, 1984, where he ripped the Celtics, talking about, you know, we got great players on this team, but sometimes we don't have the guys who play with their hearts and you know, we got a bunch of guys who basically are just nothing but a bunch of bitches until we turn things around. Well, we're going to continue to get our ass kicked. I mean, Larry Bird didn't pull no punches. Larry Bird wasn't a nice, wonderful, warm, and fuzzy guy to play with if you weren't winning, if you weren't doing what you needed to do. Same thing with Kareem. Same thing with LeBron James. Ask Wayne Embry how hard it was to play sometimes with Oscar Robertson if you made a mistake and how he would chew your ass out up and down. Same thing with Shaq. Same thing with Kobe. You know, I that's the way it is sometimes. Not all of those guys. Isaiah Thomas and Bill Lambeer. Isaiah Thomas and Bill Lambeer had rules for their teammates to follow. When Rick Mahorn was traded from the Bullets, then the Bullets, to the Detroit Pistons, Bill Lambeer met him and said, okay, these are our rules. This is how you're going to conduct yourself. This is the way we do things around here. If you don't do them, we're going to be fighting every day. 
And if you have to, if, if you have to kick my ass every day, well then so be it. But these are the rules, and this is what you're going to obey by it. That's Isaiah and Bill Thomas. What do you think? That's nice. You think that's warm and fuzzy? You think that's cuddly? You don't think that's being a tyrant? You don't think that's being a dictator? You don't think that's being an asshole? Come on, man. Peyton Manning, and that, it just transcends basketball. And Peyton Manning was told a player at tight end, I think it was Marcus Pollard, he was yelling and screaming at the guy, and Marcus Pollard said something in terms of, I don't know, the way the pass route was supposed to be ran or something like that. Peyton Manning said, let me tell you something. If I say the sky is purple, then you better believe it's purple. Okay, which is basically to say, don't fucking question my judgment, all right? If I tell you to do something, do it. That was Peyton Manning. That seems kind of bullyish, doesn't it? That seems like being kind of an asshole, isn't it? That kind of seems like being a dick, isn't it? But, you know, that's the way it is. That's the leader of the team. He is the guy. Michael Jordan was the guy. Michael Jordan is the guy where if you lose, it's going to be Michael Jordan's fault. It ain't going to be Steve Kerr's fault. It ain't going to be John Paxson's fault. It ain't going to be Cliff Levingson's fault. It ain't going to be Craig Hodges' fault. You know, it ain't going to be, you know, it's not going to be Scotty Pippen's fault, so to say. It's going to be Michael Jordan's fault. Why can't Mike win? Uh, why, why, why is, uh, you know, when seventh year going into the championship, or it's going into the seventh year in the league. You know, Michael Jordan is more concerned about winning scoring titles than he is NBA championships. That was the theme. That was the knock on Michael Jordan going into his seventh year in the NBA where he finally won a championship at the age 28. Yeah, he's the greatest physical talent, greatest talent in the NBA today, maybe ever, but how many championships has he won? There you go. No one no one talked about the fact that compared to Magic and Michael, uh, Magic and Larry Bird, that MJ didn't have the supporting cast around him to compete with those guys. It was just a matter of, well, you know, he can't win the big one. Well, you know, the, the, now Isaiah's won too. Well, you know what? Jordan can't do anything. Jordan can't do this. Jordan can't do that. So, yeah, if, sometimes he has to be a dick. Sometimes if he has to be an asshole, it's because, guess what, man? You know what? You can skate out of here scot-free. I'm going to be the one that's going to be asking the questions. Shit, LeBron James. I mean, LeBron James and people say, well, you know, he's always getting special treatment because people are always talking about, you know, his teammates aren't doing anything for him. Shit. Shit. LeBron gets mucho criticism. Guy who went to the NBA Finals, what, nine years in a row at one point? I mean, you know, he's still getting blasted. In terms of, well, he didn't win six like Michael Jordan. He didn't win five like Kobe Bryant. You know, sometimes you have to be a dick. Sometimes you have to be an asshole. That's what leadership is all about. Hey, man, I'm a substitute teacher. When I'm up there, sometimes I got to be an asshole. One of my favorite classes, third grade class uh, that I did, substituted for a teacher for a, a week or in a couple of days. I was in that classroom a lot. So those wonderful, fab, fabulous kids got a chance to know me, and I got a chance to know them. I love those kids. Man, I love those kids. My girl Haley, that's my little buddy when she was up there. Loved her to death. Was very interested in making sure that she did her work. Was very make, was very sure that she knew what was going down with math and English and making sure that she did her work. You know, loved her to death. Again, my little buddy, just like the rest of those kids at that time. But if I had to admonish her because she wasn't doing what she was supposed to be doing, that she was, you know, not doing what I was asking her to do, I had to do it. And sometimes, because I substituted in that class for a week, sometimes she didn't like it. Sometimes she kind of got withdrawn. And that was with a lot of those kids in that classroom. But, you know, I'm in charge. You know, I'm the leader. You know, and of course, I didn't bully them like Michael Jordan or anything. But the point that I'm trying to make is is that sometimes if you're going to have to be in that position, you can't always be a nice guy. Sometimes you have to go that dick route. Sometimes you have to go that asshole route. So, 
you know, I, the whole criticism about Michael Jordan being a tyrant and he's a bully and everything. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't, to me, it's a, it's a little bit overblown. But then again, it's also when he was talking about, hey, you know what? People who call me a tyrant and people say that I was this, that, and the other. Well, that's because they haven't won anything. You know, people perceive me as being a tyrant. That's because you haven't won anything. It wasn't about being selfish. It was about wanting to share in the joy and celebration of winning titles with the teammates. I'll give him credit for that. But, you know, he basically he's saying this is who I am. Good and bad. You know, take the good, you take the bad. The bad is, you know, I'm going to ride you. I'm going to hurt your feelings. I'm going to be a dick. I'm going to be an asshole. And I have the ability to do that because of who I am. And it's because of my stature. That's the bad in me. The good in, in me is if you can get through this, and if you can deal with this, well, then you're going to win a whole bunch of championships. You're going to make a whole bunch of money, and you're going to get your spotlight shown on you a lot. You know, Steve Curry ain't Steve Curry if he ain't with Michael Jordan. Bill Levingston is Bill Levingston. Luke Longley isn't Luke Longley. Dennis Rodman doesn't win a couple of more championships if he's not with the Chicago Bulls. You can make the argument that Michael Jordan doesn't win three championships if he doesn't have Dennis Rodman. But you, you, you catch my drift. So you got to take the yin with the yang, man. you got to take the good with the bad. How much of the bad were you willing to take? And how much did you crave the good to go through the bad? Who knows? Who knows? I mean, there's a fine line between leadership and bullying. You know, and you got to find that out. When Jordan came back the second time after his after his 18-month vacation, you know, he wasn't as ruthless as he was the first time with the Chicago Bulls. He learned, he matured, he grew. So, I mean, you know. Again, how much there's a fine line between leadership, I think, and bullying, and how much of Jordan's leadership was based on fear, intimidation, and bullying, and belittling, and was it mainly because he could get away with that stuff because he was so great that he could even overcome some of his some of his uh, miscues or some of his you know his, his his foibles as being a leader or anything like that. For instance, if Michael Jordan was this way in terms of his leadership style, and he had the game or he had the talent of someone like a Clyde Drexler, someone like a David Robinson, someone like an Isaiah Thomas. Would that work? Could he have still pulled all of everything that he got from those players if he wasn't so great? Who knows? Who knows? And, and that's the thing. You have to kind of juggle. You have to you have to get that common ground in between, okay, I can get away with this, and I can get away with this leadership style because me, myself, and I are at this level. If Michael Jordan wasn't as great as he was, all-time great, historically great, then maybe we're not talking about how wonderful his leadership style was because of his fear of intimidation. Hey, look, man, speaking about today's game, Chris Paul is not the easiest guy to get along with. Chris Paul will chew your ass out. Chris Paul will get in your ass. And Chris Paul makes no apologies about it. Ask, ask Doc Rivers' kid. You know, when he, when he focuses on you, he will mentally chew your ass. I mean, he will mentally wear your ass out. And there's a reason why he's been to different places. There's a reason why that, you know, you gave folks in the NBA players and a lot of in the NBA some truth serum, what they think about Chris Paul. It ain't going to be, you know, flowers and roses. You know, it, it's not all that. But Chris Paul hasn't won anything. 
Chris Paul's never made it to an NBA championship. And people have been like, hey, Chris, you know, maybe you should kind of calm down a little bit. Or maybe you should kind of change your, your leadership style a little bit. Be a little bit more you know, smoother. Be a little bit more softer, so to speak. We don't want you to be so, no punk. But maybe you could just kind of, you know, not be as hard. And Chris Paul's like, hey, man, I'm not changing. This is who I am. This is the way I lead. This is the way I play. These are my thoughts and feelings. Screw it. I am what I am. So, you know, oh, well. But... Chris Paul, as great as he is, one of the best point cards who's ever played the game, who's ever played the game, he's not um, at the Michael Jordan level. So if Jordan was playing with, say, someone like James Harden, then yeah, James Harden might respond a little bit better to Michael Jordan because of how great he is, but he ain't going to respond that way to Chris Paul. Same thing with Blake Griffin. Same thing with DeAndre Jordan. Same thing with David West. So, you know, it, does the end justify the means? I don't know, man. I don't know. There's so many different ways to to lead. I mean, hell, Tim Duncan and Derek Jeter are two of the biggest winners in sports. You never heard of them being, you know, jerks or clowns. Not clowns, but jerks or bullies or anything like that. I don't think Tim Duncan ever had to belittle one of his teammates to get his point across. Or I don't think, you know, Tim Duncan had to, you know, really, really chew somebody out. I'm quite sure that he, you know, I'm quite sure that if someone needed to be spoken to in terms of you got to pick up your game, you got to do what you need to do to help us win, I'm quite sure he did that. But I don't think he did that in the way that left the player feeling belittled or bullied or anything like that. And he won five championships. And he's one of the top players who's ever played the game. In my opinion, the most versatile front court player who's ever played the game. The top five, in my opinion, of players who've played this game of basketball. So. Who knows, man? Same thing with Derek Jeter. You, you listen to Derek Jeter, you talk about those who played and competed against Je Derek Jeter. Nothing but great things to say about the guy. And you never saw Derek Jeter out there, you know, acting that way. So, you know, leadership is a whole mesh of things. You know, the whole hodgepodge of things. And it's the same argument in terms of the ends justifying the means. Hey, you know what? If you go through this shit with Jordan... You'll win championships and everything will be worth it. Well, that's the argument that's been put to Bill Belichick in the way that he runs the New England Patriots, right? When Tom Brady left New England to go to Tampa Bay, woo-wee, oh boy, oh boy, this is so great. No, Tom can be unshackled. Tom can be Tom. Tom can do this and Tom can do that. And he can act like a, a normal human being. And it's like, you know, great. Winning championships is great. But if you're not having any fun, what's it, what's it worth to you? Well, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's a situation where it's, a, it's person to person. You know, Bill Belichick is trying to find 45 guys who think that winning is worth everything. Winning is having fun. And it's hard. And it's difficult. You don't build dynasties, as I've mentioned before in podcasts. Not that I've built dynasties. But from what I've heard, uh, you don't build dynasties based on fun and not hard and not training hard and not working hard and not going through trials and tribulations. Anything that you want in life that's hard to attain you don't get by having fun or in terms of ha it, uh, have it being easy so you know what, what what the fuck is about that so you know the leadership style of jordan does the end justify the means if he can get 12 players to say yes i'm willing to go through the bullshit that he's going to put me through but in the end it's going to mean that i'm a champion then the answer to that question does the end justify the means as far as jordan's leadership is concerned the answer is yes.
Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Hello, how you doing? You feeling good? You doing all right? Hey, look, man, you tired? Have a seat. Sit down for me. Relax. If you're driving in your car, relax. If you're at home chilling, continue to chill. Do what you need to do. Compose yourself. Relax yourself. Do what you need to do to make this place a better place for everybody to be in, regardless of race, creed, color, religion, sexual preference. Do what you need to do to make this world better for everybody from all walks of life. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. Hopefully I can kind of go ahead and do that for you. So glad that you could be with us. Ahmaud Arbery, LeBron James, Jason Whitlock. Interesting threesome. Comments that were being made by Whitlock and LeBron James. Well, basically LeBron James making a comment and then Whitlock commentating on them concerning Mr. Arbery, who was deceased. He was murdered by, I don't know if you can call them Klansmen. I don't know if you can call them, I, I know at the very, very least, you can call them two motherfuckers who need to be put in jail for the rest of their lives. Or sorry, be put in prison for the rest of their life and then have at it in terms of trying to survive. Don't know them personally, so whether it was it racially motivated or were they, are they racist or anything like that? Never met the people, never talked to the people. Their actions scream yes. Those are actions of someone who are racist, but I don't know. I've never met them. So I'm not going to call them racist. I'm going to call their act racist. And because of the act that they did, they need to be in prison for the rest of their fucking lives. And everything that goes with being in prison needs to happen to them for murdering a man based because he was black while jogging. My assessment, my assumption. So what LeBron tweeted about the murder of Mr. Arbery, he said that we're literally we're literally hunted every day, every time we step foot outside the comfort of our homes. Can't even go for a damn job, man. Like what the fuck, man? Are you kidding me? Well, that was just oh my goodness. I mean, you know, that Jason Whitlock, who was just, you know, Mr. Jason Whitlock is this guy who, you know, I can go ahead and I can bash black people every time that I need to. And I have the cachet and I have the credibility to do that because, you know, I read a Mara Angelou book and my parents were black and my mom was black. And I grew up in a less than, you know, high class area and everything like that. And, and I've listened to this black person and I've read this black person. So because of that, you know, I'm the, I'm the black intellectual, you know, who's above the Blame everything on the white folks type of uh, type of black person, you know. I'm, I'm a field Negro with a house Negro education. You know, I'm, I'm one of them guys. You know, I've got that house Negro education. I can read, I can think, I can do all these things. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman mixed in with a little bit of Martin Luther King and got some Malcolm X in me. You know, I'm, Jason Whitlock is one of those guys. So when I start criticizing black folks for doing this, or when I start criticizing black folks, when they start talking about police brutality and all these type of things, I can set black folks straight. See, this is what he's saying to white folks who don't know anything about our community, who don't know anything about us. For those who listen to Fox Sports, or excuse me, who listen to Fox News. For those who live in communities where there ain't no black folks around. You know, Jason Whitlock is going to be that guy, is going to be your, your, your education to what black people are all about. So if black... So if Jason Whitlock says that, oh, you know, this police brutality thing that well, black people are talking about or, you know, injustices in the criminal justice system, oh, you know, Jason Whitlock said, you know, black folks who are out there who are hollering and clamoring and talking about how it's unfair and how it's racist and everything like that. Well, Jason Whitlock, a black man, said that's all, that's all bullshit. So that's who I'm going to go with. So, you know, that, that, that's Jason Whitlock's role. 
And it's the same thing with Candace Owens, same thing with Diamond and Silk, these two fucking idiots who were out there uh, um, putting on that minstrel show for a Donald Trump. You know, the, the other coons like Ben Carson and the other, these other Uncle Tom losers that are out here, you know, talking about, you know, the black folks this and black folks that stage say steel who are talking about why can't we other people get together it's our we're the number one reason why that shit is happening to us it's not white folks or not the system or anything like that you know stacy dash is another one so the you know, whitlock is part of that whitlock is part of that 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 group of coons that the, those those group of toms who want to sit out there and like i said they're 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 for the master to go ahead to appease white folks who don't know anything about our community and don't want to know anything about our community and kind of like their privilege that they have with the skin color that they have. So Jason Whitlock, ah, ha, ha, yes. When LeBron James said this, oh my goodness, feeding time, feeding frenzy. Well, you know, the Whitlock response was, this isn't helpful. It's Twitter trolling. It's using a man's tragedy to build a brand as more outspoken than Michael Jordan. How did Michael Jordan get into this? Who has no fucking idea? Well, Mr. Whitlock continues. There are all kinds of ways to draw attention to this tragedy. Suggesting that we are hunted every day, every time, is just shit-stirring. Oh, yes, we, we definitely, as black folks, we do not want to shit-stir. No, 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 no. Because, I mean, if you take a look, and you take a look at Tucker Carlson, and you take a look at Sean Hannity, and you take a look at Laura Ingram, and you take a look at the idiots on Fox and Fools, and you take a look at Michael Savage, and you take a look at Rush Limbaugh, and you take a look at all them other folks, them white folks, oh, they never shit stir. No, no, uh-uh. No, they never try to stir the pot. No. You take a look at our fucking president of the United States. No. They never stir the pot. They always call it straight down the line. They always tell it like it is. They're always trying to help out the black community. And we don't need LeBron James. Oh, my goodness. He's just he's just dividing the races. He's just making it harder for us to come together. In fact, this is what, um, this is what uh, JW had to say on Speak for Yourself concerning this matter. I, I want to be clear here. I, I, I want to be clear here. I address yeah. what I felt like was my mistake. We're having a discussion about LeBron James, whether or not we thought his tweet was appropriate or whatever. We can do a separate conversation about me, and we can do it tomorrow. We can go in-depth on me. But, again, my point is if you want to draw attention to this incident and you want to draw attention to random violence or whatever if you start with we are hunted every day all the time that's a distraction it's polarizing the people anybody you're trying to convince on the other side to join your side they're not going to engage and again just as i started out by saying i made a mistake in trying to correct lebron i brought michael jordan into it and gave people a chance to be distracted when my overall point was, and I've said it very clearly over social media and over Twitter, if the goal is justice for Ahmad Arbery, the language that we use, the way we engage and try to raise awareness on this is very important. We need to engage in a language that promotes justice, not divisiveness, not further polarization, not giving in to emotions. That's where I think LeBron has made a mistake. LeBron has more influence over other athletes and more people than I do. He sets a tone. He's a pie piper for a lot of athletes. And I'm saying if those athletes want to be a part of bringing justice for Ahmad Arbery, 
Choose a tone that promotes that, not one that gives people an opportunity to distract and move away from that or be divisive okay. and polarizing. We Isn't it interesting that he called these two murderers, he called them gentlemen? Because we have to call them gentlemen because, you know, we don't want to upset the MAGA crowd. Oh, no, so we have to call them gentlemen. I mean, after all, they're innocent still until proven guilty in the court of law, the greatest justice system in the in the whole world today. So, no, 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 let's not, not, let, let's not call them what they are. I don't know if they're racist because I've never met them, but I do know what they are based on the evidence I've seen in the video. I can definitely call them murderers because that's exactly what they did. But, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, according to Jason. No, we don't want to, we don't want to upset the white folks. We don't want to get on their bad side. You know, for those out there in rural America who haven't seen a black person, and I don't know, in maybe five or ten years, no, 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 no. For all those who know black folks only by watching Sean Hannity and Fox News, oh, no, 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 no. For the good Negroes like Larry Elder who want to sit up there and talk about, well, you know, hey, you know, black folks kill black people too, and I don't hear anybody talking about that. No, 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 no. No, we don't want to, we don't want to upset them, so let's call these two fucking murderers. Let's call them gentlemen. So, of course... Jason was sitting there talking about, I had a problem with the language used in the tweet, like, we're being hunted all the time, it's a distraction, and it's polarizing. Now, you're, you are right. It is a distraction, and it is polarizing. Now, are we being hunted all the time? I will agree with Jason on this one. No, we, we are not being hunted all the time. When I leave my house, and where I leave my house, I don't feel that there's cop cars waiting for me to leave so I can be hunted. I don't think that there's cop cars waiting around. I don't think that there's police officers hiding in the bushes waiting for us to be gunned down and hunted like we're some type of game and there's some type of hunters. So no, in that situation, if you want to take that phrase literally, are we actually being hunted all the time? No. But does it feel like we're being hunted a lot of the time? Does it feel like we're being singled out a lot of the time? Does it feel like our liberties are being violated a lot of the time? Yeah. So is the is the term what LeBron James was talking about, you know, being hunted all the time, it was it more based on emotion than it was reality? Yeah. But guess what? Because of what we go through as a community dealing with the police, whether it be what happened with George Zimmerman, whether it be happening with the police as far as us being murdered by police officers and then not having any real justice come before those who have committed those, these crimes and then having a certain group of people sit there time after time after time after time after time making excuses for these people. When I first found out about this, when I first found out about Mr. Arbery being shot, the first thing I said was, well, man, Fox, Fox News, they're going to have to be doing quite a lot of flips and dips to get this one. Either they're going to, if they can't, they're just going to completely ignore it. But I'm quite sure with the fucking dumbbells that they have listening and watching their show and believing and, you know, uh, abiding by what people like Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson and and um, Sean Hannity and Judge Jadid and all of these other fucking fools over there are talking about these race-baiting assholes, what they're talking about. I'm quite sure that... They can easily swing the discussion back to Aubrey's fault by saying, well, you know, what was he jogging? What was he doing jogging in the neighborhood? Well, you know, he was running pretty fast, so he must have been trying to commit a crime. Well, you know, I mean, my goodness gracious, he could, he could have been hiding a bazooka 
in his shorts or in his running shorts. I mean, in, in, or in the socks. You never know. Uh, well, you know, you know, Mr. Arbery, when he was in high school, he did get a C minus one semester in biology. So, you know, this is a guy who had who could have a pension for um, committing crimes. Uh, let me see what else could they use. Uh, um, oh yeah, I mean, you know, he when he ran by someone, he kind of sort of kind of gave a mean look. And I was a little bit frightened by that because, you know, here's a guy who looks like he's an athlete. He looks like he's in good shape. I don't know who he is. He's black. I mean, he, he, I don't recognize him in the neighborhood. And he kind of looked at me in a certain way as he was running by me. I felt a little bit threatened. I didn't know if my life was going to be in danger. So I had to do what I had to do. I mean, you know, after all, I mean, this guy, I mean, the, the shade of black that he is, I mean, he looks like one of these guys who looks like he's from that one part of town where, you know, black folks are killing each other and selling drugs. So, I don't know. I mean, you know, the, the idiots on Fox News and the fucking dopes that watch it and believe, not just watch it, but believe in the bullshit that they're saying when it comes to our community. That's race baiting, Jason. That, that, those are the people that Jason Whitlock is saying, well, LeBron shouldn't have said that because... You know, he's slowing the progress for the two, for, for the races to be as one, to promote unity and harmony. See, what LeBron James is doing with that tweet is he's dividing the country. You know, he, he's promoting division. You can't have progress toward a solution because you'll upset people and they won't engage. Oh, my goodness gracious. Yes, because, you know, after all, those, as I mentioned before, Laura Ingram and Glenn Beck and and Bill O'Reilly, and Michael Savage, and Michelle Balkin, and Rush Limbaugh, and, and Coulter. I mean, those guys are just ready to embrace, and ready to learn, and ready to find out what's our problem, you know, what's bothering us in the community, or what our community has to go through. They're, they are ready to listen and be open-minded. Yes, and it was only if LeBron James had to put out that tweet about us being hunted. Oh, now, once again, it's, so, once again, it's our fault. Black people, once again, standing in the way of us getting toward harmony and unity, trying to be good buddies with the white folks. Boy, doggone it. You know, Mr. White Man, can we go ahead and live in our community? I'll be a good Negro, I promise. I won't say anything. I won't be any trouble at all. You know, you can have your children sit at the same table at my children at school. You know, we can live in the same neighborhood. We can shop at the same markets. We can walk down the strange, the same streets. I promise I won't be wearing my pants, pants low. You know, I won't be having tattoos. I won't be having cornrows. I won't be smoking blunts. You know, I'll be speaking proper English. I promise I'll be a good little Negro. I mean, you can show me off to all your white friends and say, this is our neighbor. Isn't he cool? Isn't he a nice guy? He's wonderful, isn't he? That's what Jason Whitlock wants. Please, please, Mr. White Man, please, Mr. White Folks, can we please come on, can, can we please come and join your club? We won't be in any trouble. We'll be quite subservient. We don't want to anger anybody. Oh, my goodness gracious. We don't want that to happen. I mean, my, I mean maybe it was a situation. I mean, Candace Owens decided she wanted to go ahead in that situation. Stacey Dash decided she wanted to go ahead and be in that, and, and, and join that situation. LeBron James isn't. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, can we join your country clubs there, Mr. White Man? I promise you, I'll be a good little Negro. I won't play that, that rap music. I won't curse. You know, I'll listen to your bullshit music and your 
bullshit stories and your stupid ass likes and dislikes and goo-hoo-hoo. I promise I won't say anything. I don't mind being the only black person there. I won't say a word. I'll just blend right in. You won't even notice that I'm black. How about that? I'll be I'll be better than OJ before he started murdering people. Woohoo! Yeah, give me a give me a break. Give me a break. But you know that's that's Jason Whitlock. That's Jason Whitlock. But uh, you know that's uh, good for him. But then again, he he is he fills a role that uh, that the white people need, who in terms want to stay ignorant when it comes to the totality of our community. You know, so he plays his role. He plays it well. But keep going what you're doing, LeBron James. Keep tweeting. If you want to go over the top with some of your criticism, go for it. Because guess what, Jason? You know, the majority of black folks, they kind of agree with LeBron James. And I think the majority of black folks, and I know you always talk about, well, Twitter really doesn't make it. Twitter really doesn't mean anything. Those are the bottom of the barrel and they're a small minority. No, 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 Jason. Jason, I'm not talking about the Twitter folks. I'm not, I'm not mentioning anything about them. I'm talking about the majority of black folks. They kind of agree with LeBron and saying, was the always being hunted, was that a little bit over the top? If you want to take it literally, yeah. But does he have a right? Do I understand where he's coming from when he makes that comment? Yeah. Does that, am I in fear that, oh my goodness, now white people, and that's what Jason Whitlock was talking about, white people don't want to engage to find a solution? White folks don't even, the majority of white folks don't even think that there's a problem, Jason. You're sitting there talking about we can't have progress toward a solution. White folks don't even feel that there is a problem when it comes to police brutality, Jason. I'm not saying all, but I'm saying enough to where it's like, fuck them in terms of we have to be dainty. We have to watch what we say. We want to make sure that we don't upset these, these folks who have that type of mentality, who think those ways. Fuck them. They ain't ever coming through, man. It's like Democrats up there trying to talk about, well, we need to be this way so you know we can get the Republican voter to come over because Donald Trump's a piece of shit. So if we appease the Republican voters, maybe they can come over and vote Democrat. That shit ain't ever going to happen. You need to get Democrats who didn't vote for Hillary, and you need to get independents with a brain in their hand if Democrats want to win back the White House. Trying to do things and trying to trying to uh, make a message or to create a message that's going to appease Republicans ain't happening. It ain't happening. So there's my thing with Jason Whitlock, Ahmaud Arbery. I might even go up and do a little 2.2 mile walk tonight. It's a nice night. I haven't done anything in a while. So I might just go out for a little walk, 2.2 miles to do my best to try to say to Ahmaud Arbery that I'm with you, I'm behind you, and God damn it, hopefully, hopefully, I have my doubts especially if you're talking about Cobb County, Georgia. I have my doubts if you'll get justice, but I'm hoping and praying you do get justice. Have those two fucking assholes locked up for life.
Wallace Wonder Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Let me end with my Georgetown Hoyas. What's going on at Georgetown? Mike McClung decides to transfer. Leading scorer last year at 15 points a game. He told ESPN a number of different events made, it, made me feel I had no choice but to transfer from Georgetown. I really wanted to stay, but things throughout my career made me realize that I couldn't. I'm looking to... I'm looking for a place I can call home, a place I can be part of a family and help them succeed. Uh, McClung informed Georgetown of his plans earlier a couple of days ago. He also intends to withdraw his name from the NBA draft. He expects to appear in the portal immediately after completing the required paperwork this morning. Now, in April, for his interviews, for his exit interviews with uh, Ben Standing of The Athletic and Ava Wallace of The Washington Post, McClung was cool. It was it was like there was no hint, there was no evidence that McClung was thinking about leaving Georgetown or there was any problems with Georgetown. I remember listening to a interview that he was doing while he was going through the um, process of you know the whole draft process, and you know the guy asked him about Patrick Ewing, and he was like, "Yeah, you know, me and Coach are close. We talk every day. You know, he's a great guidance. He's a great coach. He pushes me. You know, I can have a great." I could have a great game, and then the next day of practice, he could be on my ass if I make a mistake, and that's exactly what I need, so I appreciate Coach and this, that, and the other. There was no evidence during the season that there was any type of riff or there was any type of discontent between McClung and Ewing. After the games, Ewing met with the McClung family, and everything was smiles and this, that, and the other. And I remember the first year that Ewing was talking about with McClung that he would call the family once a day and kind of, you know, kind of give a report and see how they're doing and everything. So I, I, I don't, I don't know exactly what happened. I mean, in fact, again, in April, McClung was expressing pride about the team's effort and optimism of his leadership when he's going to return from the draft process. He even acknowledged that he had shortcomings in this game, shooting way too much, not playing good enough defense. So I don't understand exactly what happened. Now, the reports are that, look, he got feedback from the NBA saying that you have to, uh, you know, you're not going to make it in the NBA unless you're a point guard. So you have to improve your point guard skills. Well, Georgetown already brought in like three or four point guards. They brought in a draft a grad transfer. They recruited uh, Dante Harris, who's a point guard. They just brought this guy, T.J. Berger, who's a point guard. They got this guy, uh, uh, T.J. Be uh, Beard, Tyler Beard from uh, Chicago, who to me looks more like a combo guard, but he played point guard up in Chicago. So I guess McClung found, saw all of that stuff and it was like, well, if I'm not going to get an opportunity to play point guard, then I got to take my talents elsewhere. I, 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 you know, I am, uh, I wish him luck. He's a great guy, great kid. But I, I think he's making a huge mistake. I think he's making a huge... Number one, how in the world is he going to be able to play next season? This whole notion or the rule that's going to prohibit or that's going to allow players to uh, transfer once and be able to play immediately next year, I think that doesn't go into effect until next season. So how is he getting a waiver after he played the entire season or you know played most of the season or enough to where... You know, he couldn't redshirt. How in the world is he going to be able to play immediately? And if he can't play immediately, then why is he going to transfer? If the only reason why he is transferring is because he's not going to be allowed to play point guard. Patrick Ewing, Matt McClung was going to have the ball in his hands the majority of the time. Maybe not with Harris on the team, but as far as being able to uh, create and do other things, McClung was going to be able to go ahead and do that. And guess what? 
Mac, I hate to say this to you, man, but you're not good enough to be an NBA point guard right now. You're just not. You're not. Your defense isn't good enough. Your decision making isn't good enough. You're not a natural. You're not a natural point guard. You didn't play it in high school. You didn't play it. You played a little bit when you were with AAU Takeover. But for the most part, you are a scorer. You are a guy with the ball in your hands, and you like to score. If you were, if you are going to be a point guard, you're you are not going to be a traditional point guard. You're just not. As unbelievable as your jumping ability and your athleticism is, you do not have the makeup. You don't have the the, 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 the length of the arms. You just don't have the body structure to be a lockdown defender. So you're never going to be able to guard anybody in the NBA, just like you couldn't guard anybody from the point guard or shooting guard position when you were at Georgetown playing for them. So I, I don't know exactly going somewhere else. What is that going to do? All of a sudden now it's going to turn you into a traditional point guard. You could put the You could go to a school which has them give you the rock and do what you're going to do. You're not going to be a traditional point guard. You are always going to be, that's your mentality. You are always going to be a scoring first point guard. You are going to be more Russell Westbrook in terms of the way you play offensively than you are John Stockton. That's just the way it is. So I don't know exactly what transferring from Georgetown is going to do. But if that's your decision, go ahead. And I wouldn't expect Patrick Ewing to acquiesce and be like, well, please don't go. Okay, we'll go ahead and start you at the point guard position to where it could be you, Javon Blair, uh, Jabari Sibley, uh, Jamarco Pickett and Kudus Wahab. Yeah, sure, we can go ahead and do that. I mean, Patrick Ewing went ahead and he Patrick Ewing went ahead and he um, recruited point guards for a reason. Because Mac, as of right now, you're not good enough to play the point guard full time. Now, could, there could be situations. Look, we don't know how much Dante Harris is going to play. Again, Tyler Beer could play. I think a little combo guard. So if he wanted to put you at the point guard position, he could put. Beard at the uh, off guard. We don't know how much TJ Berger is going to play. We don't know. So there will still be situations where you could get some game time in terms of you playing of you playing the point guard. But in the I don't know, I don't know. But then again, so it goes back to oh, you know, Patrick Ewing has lost a team, and Patrick Ewing has said the other. Now, again, I, I will say this with Patrick Ewing, this makes now eight transfers going into his fourth year. That is a problem. I can't excuse the man for that. Chris Sodom, Antoine Walker, Grayson Carter, James Akinjo, Josh LeBlanc, Galen Alexander, Myron Gardner, Mac McClung. That's a problem. That's a big problem. That's a, hey, coach, can I see you in my office to find out what the hell's going on type of problem. Understood. But, you know what? Each one of those guys left for different reasons. Chris Sodom and Antoine Walker were dismissed from the team for violating team rules. I think Sodom was involved in a fight in a bar or something like that. That's the rumor. So you're, you're going to keep him after that? It, um, um, Antoine Walker, I think, was harassing somebody at, at the campus. or There was something along those type of lines to where he was told to stop. He continued to do it. What do you want Ewing to do? Look, man, stop or else I'm going to kick you off the team. Fuck you. I'm going to keep doing it. Okay, you're off the team. I mean, that's how, how are you going to blame Ewing on that one? And... Antoine Walker was a JT3 kid, so that wasn't even his recruit. Sodom transferred to George Washington, left the program after three months. Now he's at Delaware State. Walker is now at Rhode Island. I, I'm not I'm not putting any credence into, oh, man, what the fuck's going on with Patrick Ewing? I mean, Chris Sodom and Antoine Walker left. What's going on? Grayson Carter transferred because he was being recruited over. 
because he wasn't good enough to play. He went down a level. He's playing at University of Texas Arlington. Now, you could criticize Ewing in terms of well, why he's even recruiting Grayson Carter to begin with. Now, that's fair. That's fair. But you can't blame Patrick Ewing for Grayson Carter transferring. I mean, people who were highly recruited or people who were recruited by Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, Kentucky, Villanova, they all transfer. Mike Krzyzewski has people transfer every year almost. Same thing with Roy Williams. Same thing with Bill Self. Same thing with Jay Wright. It happens. It happens. So I, I, don't, I don't know as far as those three, you really can't, you know, sit there and talk about Ewing sucks or this, that, and the other. Now, James Akinjo leaving. James Akinjo didn't want to play with Matt McClung. All right? Again, maybe Ewing should have done his homework. But by the time he got Akinjo, Matt McClung was already committed to Georgetown. So, and James Akinjo must have known also that, well, guess what? Matt McClung is already at Georgetown University. And despite the comments made by his, his uncle, James Akinjo's uncle, I, I don't know how much of a detriment it was for Akinjo to play with uh, Matt McClung when he made the all-freshman team, where he was named freshman of the year, where he had the rock in his hand multiple, you know, for the majority of the time. He led the team in shots taken, despite the fact that he was shooting 37 percent from the field and under 28 percent from the three-point line, and he continued to take shots. I, I, I don't know exactly what James Akinjo was wanting to get from Patrick Ewing in the Georgetown program. Oh, and guess what? He transferred to Arizona where what? He's going to be playing with multiple point guards. So I, I don't know exactly the disconnect between, you know, James Akinjo and Patrick Ewing. There was some talk by his uncle by saying that Patrick Ewing made a comment to Akinjo about his now deceased mother or something like that, which that proved to be false. So with Akinjo, I don't, I don't exactly know what went down. I don't know what his thinking was. Maybe he wanted to be closer to Oakland where he was from. I don't know. But damn, Patrick Ewing sure did give him a whole lot of rope. He was playing over 30 minutes a game. Again, he was leading the team last, his freshman year in scoring, or I think one of him and Jesse Govan. He made the, he, he was Biggie freshman of the year. But what more did you want? What more were you looking for? You didn't like sharing the ball with Gene, with uh, Matt McClung, when both of you guys were running pro-style offenses, Ewing runs sets that they run in the NBA. And somehow that wasn't enough for you? Again, you could criticize Ewing in terms of, well, why were you going to recruit someone like this? That, that's fair criticism. But talking about a loss of a control of this program and all that kind of other stuff, you can't put that on Grayson Carter transferring. You can't put that on Chris Sodom and Antoine Walker being dismissed by Ewing for violating team rules. You can't do that. You know, Josh LeBlanc, again, another guy. Big East made the Big East freshman team. Why did he leave? I don't know. Now, Myron Gardner is at South Plains College. He downgraded. Galen Alexander went to a, a school in the SWAC, Texas Southern. They left over rumors or innuendo or something about, you know, some misgivings with a student at Georgetown. Whether it was true or not, I don't know. I had no idea. I wasn't there. But there was a police report talking about that stuff. Again, I don't know. I'm not choosing sides. I wasn't there. But because of that, maybe the administration, maybe the athletic department, maybe Ewing himself said, look, maybe you guys need to get out of town or maybe you guys need to transfer, go somewhere else and start fresh, start anew. I don't know. I wouldn't be privy to those conversations. So I, I have no idea. But some of this stuff is just, 
what the fuck is going on at Georgetown? Now you got this Matt McClung situation where, again, he wants to play point guard. Ewing is not going to let him play point guard all the time. Okay, well, I'm going to take my ball and go somewhere else. I don't know, man. I don't know. John Thompson Jr. had 31 players transfer in 27 seasons as a coach. You know, so, I mean, and now for, uh, going into his fourth season, Patrick Ewing has eight. Yikes. <laughs> That's a lot. That's a lot. And so, of course, you have the, is Georgetown a better place now than it was four years ago? I don't know. I don't know, man. Does anyone remember what was going on four years ago? I mean, it wasn't all rosy and frozy and snowy wozy, right? I mean, they were, I mean, the, 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 the PA guy, when they were announcing the team, when they were announcing the starting lineup for Georgetown, it got so bad that in his last year, they didn't even announce JT3 as the coach because they didn't want him to be booed, especially with the pops there. So I don't, I don't know. Are they in a better place? I don't know. I have no idea. I, 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 I'll tell you one thing. I know for one thing, I think the answer can't be definitely no. And I don't think it can be definitely yes. I have no idea. Well, they haven't made the tournament yet. He's been there three fucking seasons. Did anybody, again, I, I'm sorry to keep bringing this up, but I feel that I have to because no one is either, when I listen to um, the uh, the casual podcast with Bobby Bancroft and Ben Stelling and all these guys and, 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 and Andrew Geiger, and they're talking about the Georgetown basketball team or when I'm reading on Twitter and I'm reading the Georgetown faithful talking about this, did anybody coming to Ewing first year say, Damn, that team better make the NIT at the very least. Damn, that team better be ready to, to make an NCAA tournament run. Did anybody in Ewing's first year of the coach with the team that he had, did anybody say that about that team? If they did, they were stupid beyond belief. They were dumb enough to believe in the idiot that we have in the White House now because he's going to turn my situation around financially. He's that kind of dumb to think that, or that kind of naive to think that Patrick Ewing in his first year was going to turn around that program to at least make it to an NCAA tournament run. His second year, starting three freshmen for the most part of the season, along with Govan and they had a guy like Caleb Johnson and everything, did that team going into the season look like it should have been an NCAA tournament team? Did anybody predict going into the season that that team was going to win 19 games in Ewing's second, re- second season? He had a guy in Matt McClung who was a three-star recruit and was, dra- and was ranked somewhere in the 200s you had a guy in James Akinjo who was an undersized point guard who couldn't shoot, who was a 90th four-star recruit. And then you had Josh LeBlanc, a guy who was a more of a Montrez Herald, you know, energy effort type of guy who was a four-star recruit. He was starting those three. These weren't one-and-done guys. These weren't five-star lottery pick guys. Oh, and by the way, the guy Javon Quigley, who went to Villanova as a five-star recruit, a top 15, top 25-star recruit, point guard, who went to Villanova, he transferred after one year because he wasn't getting any run. James Akinjo was the biggest freshman of the year. He wasn't, again, a five-star recruit. He was the freshman of the year in a major basketball conference. Patrick Ewing can't coach. Patrick Ewing can't get the job done. Patrick Ewing took a team that two years ago was 14 and 19 and an absolute joke. And then two years after that, with three freshmen starting, all of them unheralded, it's going to lead them to 19 victories, including wins against the defending NCAA champion Villanova Wildcats and victories on the road against Marquette. Patrick Ewing can't coach. Patrick Ewing can't get the job done. Patrick Ewing needs to go. Patrick Ewing is underachieving that second year as a coach. They made the NIT. They faded a little bit down the stretch. Okay. But still, again, when that season started, 
If you were going to tell me that Patrick Ewing was going to lead that team to 19 victories and going into the last part of the season that they were going to be in the discussion for an NCAA tournament, would you have taken that? Would you have said Patrick Ewing did a great job with that team? Fuck you, you would have said yes. Don't bullshit me, you would have said yes. Going into his second year, you said that they would have beaten decisively the defending champion Villanova Wildcats. And they would have won and beaten Marquette, a top top 15 ranked team at the time, with Marcus Howard on the road in a game that they needed during that season for the highlights. You would have fucking taken that in a heartbeat. Don't fucking bullshit me, man. Bullshitter knows one, so I know one. Don't sit up there and talk about, yeah, but, yeah, but, no, man. 19 and 15, they outperformed their expectations. Then going into his third year, I thought this was going to be the year that they should have made the tournament. I was one of those who said, fuck it, man. NCAA tournament or bust. You have three guys coming back who should make the next leap to where they should be making some all Big East teams. You have a pretty good recruiting class. You have Jabarco Pickett coming back. This team should be better. You have O'Meara Yurt 7. This team should be a team that should be somewhere around the top 20, 25 teams in the country. Somewhere between 22, 23, 24 before the season is over. Those were my expectations for Georgetown. Now, fuck it. How did I know that James and Kinjo, Josh LeBlanc were going to transfer? How the fuck did I know that? How did I know that O'Meara Yurt 7 was going to twist his ankle and miss the boatload of time? How did I know that McClung, once again, was going to go down with plantar fasciitis in a bad eye and miss some games? How do we know that? How do we know that the that the death on the bench was going to transfer with Myron Gardner and Galen Alexander? How do we know that? And yet, despite playing a rotation that included meaningful minutes by a guy named Timothy Ego Hefe, Georgetown still found a way before collapsing at the end of the season. Why? Oh, because you had three guys playing 40-plus fucking minutes. James Akinjo, Javon Blair, Terrell Allen. By the way, no, no, none of those guys are going to be drafted in the first five, six, seven picks of the NBA draft. So this wasn't an R.J. Barrett, Cam Newton, I'm sorry, R.J. Barrett, Zion Williamson, Cam, Cameron Regis type of situation. This wasn't a John Wall, DeMarcus Cousins, uh, Terrence Jones type of situation in terms of the three. Yeah, those guys were awesome. Those guys took that in the other. We were out there putting up Javon Blair, Jagan Mosley, Terrell Allen. Please. And we still found a way to beat Butler. And we still found a way to be highly competitive against Providence and against Villanova. Please. Please. If Amir doesn't go down, if Matt McClung didn't get injured, I know what ifs and what ifs. But let me tell you something. If, all, if we all talk about the Kinjo and LeBlanc, as soon as those guys left, we won six games in a row. Before that, we beat Texas. After that, we beat Syracuse. What more do you want Patrick Ewing to do? Under those certain uh, circumstances, name me another coach with the losses that we had. Name me another coach who had to go with Terrell Allen playing 40 minutes, Jacob Mosley playing 40 minutes, Javon Blair, Blair playing 40 minutes, Jamarco Pickett being um, out of position in, in, the, in, in what he was trying to do, with Kulis Wahab being inexperienced and playing the minutes that he was doing, having to insert Timothy Eco Hefe, sometimes having to go with uh, George Mirasan's kid. Tell me what coach in America, you fucking idiots. Tell me what coach in America with that with that team in front of them where you say, oh, yeah, he would have got them in the tournament. Oh, yeah, no, no problem. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
playing Timothy Eagle Hefe 10, 15 minutes. Oh, Javon Blair, 40. Jacob Mosley, 40. Terrell Allen, 40. Game after game after game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Coach K, Coach Self, Coach Wright. Oh, they would have had. That Georgetown would have been in the tournament. No problem. And I'm naming the elite of the elite coaches. So all you clowns out there who think Patrick Ewing needs to go, he needs to be fired, bring me in someone who will have taken the group that he had right there and lead them to the tournament. Name me somebody. Sure ain't going to be Chaco, so, uh, smart of uh, Texas, Chaco Smart of Texas. It wasn't going to be Mike Bray of Notre Dame. It wasn't going to be Tommy Emmerker of, Howard, of, uh, of uh, Harvard. It wasn't going to be any of those guys. And all this bullshit about, well, you know, Georgetown needs to go outside of the family. Guess what? Before Ewing was offered the job, they did go after Shaka Smart. They did, did go after Mike Bray. They did go after Dan Hurley. They did go after the head coach at North Carolina State. They did go after all of these guys. They did go after all of these guys, you fucking idiots. They did go after all of them. And then they went ahead and got Patrick Ewing, who, for me, as of right now, is the right choice. Dan Hurley wasn't going to get that team into the tournament. Tommy Amaker was not going to get that team into the tournament. Mike Bray was not going to get that team, Jeff Goodman, into the tournament. I'm sorry if I'm getting emotional, but I'm so sick and fucking tired about this bullshit that Patrick Ewing had to deal with from these fucking idiots of the fan base. Enough already. Now, I will say this. I will say this. If I don't see some improvement in the next two years, Ewing has a six-year contract going into year four. If I don't see some improvement from the team in year four or year five, then we're going to start having the discussion. Then I'll jump on your bandwagon that Ewing needs to go. And when I say need to see some progress, first of all, the mass exodus of the, the, the mass exodus of recruits leaving, that has to stop. That has to stop. Look, if you lose a recruit well, you know, once every one or two years, I get it and I understand. But losing eight after three years, true. That that's way too much. I agree with that. So if, if it's gonna be like this, where you're gonna have two or three guys transferring or leaving the program after being with the team one or two or three years, then that's a huge problem. Then that, that's a fireable offense. We, truly, Georgetown has to go into a different direction. Absolutely not going to argue that point. If I don't see some type of improvement from, you know, in year four and five of the Ewing coaching regime from guys like Dante Harris or Jabari Sibley or, or Tyler Beard or any of the freshmen that he's bringing in right now, if I don't see him in 2021 get himself a Frankie Collins or maybe a Chet Holmgren who are four- and five-star recruits, okay, then we can start having the conversation, is Ewing the right guy for coaching this basketball team? Because I understand. I get it. I understand. Hey, look, man, there's more to coaching than just X's and O's. I got you. I understand. Especially in college basketball. I get it. I understand. Recruiting is huge. Formulating and putting a team together is huge. How you recruit, what type of players are you recruiting, the positions that they're in. I get all that. That is highly important. And if you can't do that, then you're right. Unless you're an absolute fucking genius with the X's and O's, you're not going to make it as a coach if you're coaching in the ACC or the Big Ten or the Big East or the Pac-12 or whatever. I get all those things. So the weakness in Ewing's game right now as a coach is his recruiting. I don't know if there's a disconnect. When people are talking about there's a disconnect and all that kind of stuff, ask Jesse Govan's about relationship with Coach Ewing. Ask Marcus Derrickson's relationship with Coach Ewing. Ask Jamarco Pickett's relationship with Coach Ewing. Ask Trey Dickerson's relationship with Coach Ewing. 
you get a lot of guys who swear in love by the guy. The way those guys played last season, there is no way that you can tell me that they don't care about their coach. The way those guys, I'll tell you one thing, Javon Blair, Terrell Allen, Jacob Mosley, uh, uh, Jamarco Pickett, Kualis Wahab, I know those five care about Patrick Ewing, at least today they do. The way those guys played, the way those guys gave it all for their coach, you can't tell me that there's a dis- disconnect between Ewing and those five players. Now, maybe the other seven hate his guts, but I know those five gave a damn about him because you don't play that hard for a coach like that if you don't care about him. So, I don't know, man. I don't know. But again, if I don't see some type of improvement, excuse me, if I don't see some type of improvement, then you're right. Then it's time for Georgetown and Patrick Ewing to go in a different direction in after year five. So, there you go. All right, I am out of here. Three hours? Yeah! Take this by, like, hour time. You know what I'm saying? The first hour was good. The second hour was really good. And then the third third hour, I just kicked it in the high gear. I mean, I was... <laughs> I came on strong, baby. I came on strong. But I thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Feels good. Feels real good. Wendell Wallace. Talking Wendell's world and sports. Be safe. Be good. Be all right. Get me out of here. 